I was probably going maybe 90 or 100 miles an hour. I got in a tank slapper. My face was looking at my front number plate. My elbows were over the, the handlebars, and my hands were down by the front axle. And I was I was going over the handlebars, but I was still wobbling left and right. I looked in front of me, and there was this mound of dirt, and I hit this dirt and just came to immediate stop. And I went to get up, and my left leg kept falling back down on the ground. And it was I, I, I went to pick it up with my hands above my knee, and it was like a noodle. It just kept limping over, kept falling down. And I thought, well, shit, that's not right. Episode 26, Tank Slapping Podcast. You're not Corey Texter. I'm not Corey Texter. What's going you're on? not Corey Texter. I'm not Corey, Corey Texter. Texter? No, I don't know. Uh, you know where Corey Texter is. You want to explain what happened to Corey? Yeah, well, we're uh, obviously, um, we're missing Corey Texter tonight. And uh, Corey, uh, we, we, we told him to sit this one out. He had a little motocross training accident. Nothing major. He's just a little sore. And uh, so, hey, you know, we told him to sit this one out. I think we got it covered. Carter, how do you feel about it? Yeah, it was like literally like hours before we were hopping on the line with uh, David Aldana. Um, and I I said, man, you could, you could just sit this one out. We'll, we'll handle it. Um, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll still carry the, carry the torch and, and, and do him justice for his podcast. But, uh, but you're going to rock the interview with David Aldana. It's going to be awesome. What are friends if, if they don't got your back? Exactly. So we, we got your back, Corey. Absolutely. But before we get into uh, to that, I want to definitely thank our sponsors first. Uh, first, our title sponsor, Bell Power Sports. All three champions from the American Flat Track Series wore the Bell Race Star Flex last season. Check out bellhelmets.com to view their full line of products. The quality and safety is unmatched, and if you start tank slapping, you want to be protected by Bell. And we'd also like to thank Roof Systems of Dallas, Texas, commercial and industrial roofing company. Uh, they have nearly 40 years of experience. So if you're in the need of a roof, uh, contact commercialroofsystems.net. Want to thank Dunlop Tire. Dunlop is the official tire of the American Flat Track Series with their new and improved DT4 flat track tire. Dunlop has two compound front tires and three compound rear flat track tires available. To find your nearest dealer, visit DunlopMotorcycleTires.com. Hit them up on social media and tell them the boys from Tank Slapping sent you. We also want to give a shout out to one of our biggest supporters of the show, and that is the Moto America Series. They are the official AMA road racing series in the USA, led by 190 mile an hour super bikes. Pittsburgh International Race Complex is August 7th through August 9th. They have 10 race weekends at top tracks, including Road America, Laguna Seca, Indianapolis, and Road Atlanta. All day racing with five classes each day. There are various ticket packages to choose from. Five ways to watch the action if you can't attend, including Moto America Live, plus with all day live streaming. FS2 Live Saturday and Sunday Superbike Races. Super Sport Class airs on MAV-TV along with Moto America Rewind and Junior Cup Classes on FS2 days after the race weekend. Check it all out at MotoAmerica.com. Yeah, so uh, a few things to talk about, you know, here in our opening segment. Big news, Indy Mile 
back on the schedule officially coming back for two nights of racing at the famed historic Indy Mile. Uh, I can't tell you how excited I am that we're going to be back at Indy. Uh, as most of you know, uh, it was a racetrack that obviously has historic uh, significance, but we thought we'd never see uh, any type of racing there again. And uh, I hope this is not the last race there, but if it is, it's going to go down in history. And I think it's pretty cool that an American flat track race will be the last event to happen at uh, such a historic venue. Uh, Carter, I know you, uh, in conversation we have had, uh, at the racetrack, you've, you've never been there, but you do have, uh, you've watched it, and I know you got some memories. You got any uh, anything uh, that you want to share about Indy or any the, feelings on it? The only memories I have are ones that I've seen on a, a TV screen or a computer screen of, of videos and files that I've watched, but uh, don't have a lot of context for it. Never, you know, I was, I've only been involved in the sport for about three or four years. So you definitely weren't racing Indy at, at that point. And uh, weren't going there when I was working with the series, but um, I've seen the only thing that I, that sticks out in my mind is is a crazy crash. It was like one of the first videos I ever saw of flat track with uh, Brandon Robinson from Indy. Um, I know he re- remembered remembers that that was that was something. I uh, saw a lot of cool close wins at Indy. Um, and man, it's you know you've been hearing the rumors for weeks. I know that it's Indy's going back there. It's something that they've kind of the series has had an interest in for for years. So no, not you, Siri. Did you hear that? <laughs> Hold on. I know the series has had an interest in trying to go back there for years, so it's cool that they uh, they were able to make that happen. I'm sure that there was a lot that went into it, and uh, I know there's a lot of people excited about having a, a mile on this on the schedule. So, um, how does it feel for you? You guys excited with you and, and you and Ryan? Yeah, you know, uh, there's not many people that don't like Indy. That you know, it seems like one of those places once you ride it, you love it. And uh, it was actually, to be honest with you, one of my favorite miles to race. Um, you know, it depending on the year, the surface could be a little bit different, but no matter what, anytime I've been to Indy, that place is badass in practice, no matter what. So I know everybody's looking forward to, you know, getting, uh, getting there and, and letting it hang out. It's going to be good to be back. Uh, you know, Corey's not here, but if he was here, I know he'd be talking about Indy. It's special to him too. It's a place he made his first national main event. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and we can't talk, uh, about Indy Mile and not mention Kenny Roberts. It's got to be one of the most iconic races that uh, motorsports or motorcycling has ever seen. Uh, is 1975 when uh, Kenny Roberts came out and debuted the uh, TZ750 and um, actually won the thing. Uh, you know, he's famously quoted for saying they don't pay me enough to ride that thing. And uh, he went out there and I guess, you know, t- I would say tame the beast. Uh, what a beast to tame <laughs> and uh, what a venue to tame it at. So that, that, that's, uh, you know, making Indy that much more iconic, uh, that race and, and to go back there again. Uh, like I said, uh, I know you're going to be in for a treat Carter to watch it. You know, now that you're, this much more involved in the sport uh last time we were there was 2015 and brad baker won it so uh who knows who's going to win it this year it's flat track it's a mile it's going to come down to a photo finish i'm sure of that you and you're going to get to pick up some indie dirt apparently wasn't that a thing that you yeah were? yeah yeah i'm so stoked on that as <laughs> most of you know i collect dirt and uh i was super bummed that I don't have any indie dirt. I just don't have it, you know. 
uh, and I was I was trying to get a hold of people last year that were there for like the for the Hoosier Hundred, the sprint car race. I was like, yeah. and nobody got down on the track. I'm like, I was so bummed, and you know, I was like, man, well maybe one of these days driving cross country, I can sneak over to the fairgrounds and scoop some dirt. And uh, you know, I'm glad it didn't happen that way because I rather get it from a race and. Uh, in a couple of weeks time we'll be there and uh or actually why i say a couple of weeks time uh no well next week we'll be there and uh we'll be uh i'll be scooping up some dirt and it's, adding to my collection it's one of my favorite lines that i've heard on the podcast so far is as many of you know i collect dirt <laughs> it's good stuff i do i legitly collect no that's right awesome now. uh and i'm sure everybody yeah. else is pretty stoked about the whole indie deal dude um what's this about like no laconia is that confirmed yeah i guess yeah you know, it's not, it was, well, <laughs> if you looked at the schedule that was out, there was a uh, to be announced Northeast right. date that was, you know, rumored to be Laconia uh-huh. and everything was kind of on the hinges with uh, whether Laconia bike week was happening. Yeah. But since Indy came out officially on the schedule, if you look, that to be uh, determined date has been, or to be announced date has since been dropped. So I would say it's safe to say there's no Laconia. Wow. So when they added Indy, that might be replaced that one then, huh? Yeah, yeah, gotcha. you know, um, which is a bummer for the fans in the Northeast because, yeah. uh, you know, I, I know they were pretty stoked to have uh, Flat Track come back to the Laconia Bike Week. And, right. You know, it's not a part of the country we get to too often. So I'm bummed on that level just to not see it happen do you know is bike week still happening up there do you know that or i don't know i think it i think it might i don't I, i've heard that it is and then i heard that it isn't i don't know where they landed on it um but yeah 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 who knows i know one thing um sturgis bike week is going on. i was about to say i know that's about to be popping off or it is starting already people are heading that way who we talked to uh we talked to uh, the folks from that extreme flat track deal uh, on the uh, on off the groove earlier this week. Uh, there's a lot of flat track racing still going on, even though AFT won't be there this year. And uh, a lot of people flocking to South Dakota, man. Uh, Black Hills. Yeah, you know it's uh, I you know I it's one of my favorite weeks of the year to go over there, it's, and uh, yeah. it, it Black Hills beautiful, Mount Rushmore. Um, you get to see bison roaming around. It's it's a beautiful part of the country, uh, especially at that time of the year. And Bike Week is such a, a, a you know has such a historic place within within the motorcycling world and our sport as well with the jack pine gypsies club yeah. uh you know the, the cool thing about it i always you know the, when i hear sturgis it's labeled as the sturgis rally and races yep and uh that's pretty cool yeah. uh, i'm bummed that we're not there this year but i guess racing is happening i guess uh you know bike week is happening there um i know a lot of people are kind of on the fence with the whole covid coronavirus deal about large gatherings um i don't it's not my place to say you know uh you know give an opinion on 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 that side of things i try to stay out of it but uh for the people that are going and feel safe going i wish they have a great bike week and for the people that uh decided to stay home and feel safe staying home i hope that uh they stay safe and we'll make it back to bike week maybe in 2021 when we can all be there back with american flat track series 
uh, doing what we all love to do. Absolutely. I hope they get some of that stuff, uh, some pictures working from that track. Though. I hear that they're building a super TT there. Robbie Pearson has something to be involved with that, so that'll be cool to see if, if that if they do have some streaming um, service or, or any kind of pictures. I just want to see what the track ends up looking like because they're, they're building it at some motoplex at Buffalo Chips, so... Um, yeah, it'd be super yeah, that's interesting be to see. Cool. I mean, yeah. you know, there's so many, uh, you know, I mean, it's uh, technology's come a long way. I'm sure somebody's going to put something together. So yeah. if uh, if somebody does, let us know, you know, drop us a message on, uh, on on Facebook or, or even Instagram. And uh, if you if you know of a live feed or something going off at Sturgis, let us know because we want to know about it. We're fans of the sport just as much as anybody. Right, Carter? Absolutely, dude. Another thing. uh I wanted to bring up was uh, Moto America. Uh, I don't know if you watched, got the chance to, to watch any of the racing, Carter, but, you know, sad to say, American road racing has been down in the dumps. Yeah. And uh, Mo- the people at Moto America have done a great job of reviving it awesome. and bringing it back. And there's some really good racing right now. Uh, Carter, I know you follow them on Instagram, and they got – you know they have the races on tv uh there's a lot of ways to watch online so i'm, I'm fine with the spoiler alert because i'm going to go back and watch it anyway so what happened last weekend well um since you're all right with that i'm just <laughs> going to go ahead and tell you that Cameron bobier just pretty much dominated the weekend nice. uh, in the superbike class so spoiler alerts aside you know the good thing about uh moto america and their instagram pages you can go back and uh get a nice recap you know and you feel like you don't miss out by by watching their their cool videos so anyway um with uh, all that said um we're on to our guest for t- tonight's show yeah dude uh, i'm stoked about this because like i said i'm still kind of new on the whole flat track scene uh, three four years in which is nothing compared to you know most of the folks in the community um and the one thing uh that stuck out when i was first getting involved was as i saw this guy's leathers, right? It's, you knew it was coming. Like, I don't know him at all as a person, but I know that any dude that rocks those leathers is a badass. So I, I can't wait to hear more about him um, and have you uh, have you do this interview, man. I'm stoked to hear it. If you if you are hip to the coolest set of leathers probably to uh, ever line up on a, on a racetrack, uh, you might know who we're talking about. This guy is an icon and legend of the sport. He's been an ambassador of the sport for close to 50 years. He's raced during, I think, seven different decades. He's still racing today, obviously not on a professional level, but uh, he's still lining up. And, uh, you know, anytime you strap on a helmet, doesn't matter what level you're doing it, you're still a racer. And this guy's doing it to this day. Like I said, he's a, a true icon and hero of the sport. And I'm pretty pumped to talk to this guy. Of course, we're talking about none other than the David Aldana, star of On Any Sunday. Carter, you want to give him a call? Absolutely. Let's do it. Hello. David. Hello, Hello David Aldana. Yes. Hey, this is, uh, this is Sammy Sabedra from uh, the Tank Slapping Podcast. How you doing? Very good, thanks. Good to hear, man. Hey, uh, you know, uh, be- before we get started, I uh, just wanted to let you know we got a little bit of bad news, and the bad news is Corey Texter's not going to be on the other end of this uh, line. He was uh, 
involved in a minor accident today uh you moto riding training do a little training and uh he went ass over tea kettles i guess and he's a little banged up he's okay but just not up to par to do the show i guess he's uh might be a little goofy but that's typical for Corey anyway being a little goofy so uh unfortunately we're gonna have to do the show without Corey. but the good news is uh we still have you on man and it's uh it's a real honor and a pleasure to talk to somebody that's uh you know, not only a legend, but an icon of the sport. One of the first things I want to talk about is uh, you've had a lengthy racing career. I mean, when and how did you get started in racing? I mean, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Gosh, uh, well, before I even got on motorcycles, uh, I used to uh, ride my bicycle before there was such a thing as a Stingray bicycle. We bought a one of those little banana seats from Pet Boys. We put them on our 26-inch bicycles, and we would ramp up against the fence and jump over the fence over this ramp on our bicycles. And I think it was after that my father had had some sort of experience in that uh, my uncle uh, used to tune for a uh, racer at Ascot, and he got my father involved when I was about maybe, maybe 10 years old or so. And... So I went to a few races to, you know, kind of just hang around as a kid does uh, with his father. And we probably went to some scramble races in Southern California, probably maybe three or four times a year. And I turned 14. Uh, I remember uh, he uh, took me to a motorcycle shop and said, it was, I'll buy you a motorcycle, whichever one of those out there in the, in the, in the lot, yeah, you can start, I'll buy for you. And luckily for me, uh, I... Uh, could not start this Vespa. I don't know why I went to this Vespa because it looked like a girl's bike, I guess. Thank God you did not start the Vespa. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And uh, so I couldn't get anything started on the, on the parking lot there. So I kind of think now that I I look back, I probably didn't have the ignition key on, on any of them. So none of them were going to ever start. So I, uh, I think it was a week went by or something. I went to the Suzuki uh, dealership. It happened to be open on a Sunday which is rare out in Southern California at the time. And uh, I, I guess I must have started with Suzuki because that's what I got with the 80cc Suzuki. And uh, I was too young to ride it on the road, so I immediately uh, stripped it, you know, took the headlights, taillights off it, and put your track tires on it, or probably tires on the same gauge rings I had. I started to go to some scrambles races with my father, but again, it was, you know, maybe three or four times a year and he would loan his truck out to somebody and the deal, you know, the races and the deal was if uh, he loaned his truck out to them, that they had to take me to the races. So I got to go to a few scrambles races. And, uh, so that's kind of where I started. And as soon as I turned 16, uh, I had a van, uh, and I got a part-time job at a motorcycle shop and, uh, so I could afford to put gas in it, but you know, then 20, 26 cents uh, a gallon wasn't that much, but it was a lot to a guy who only made $63 a week, so it did make a difference. But I started taking myself to the races, and I would go to, uh, and this would only be familiar with guys in the Southern California area, but I, I would go to a racetrack about 10 miles from my house called El Toro Raceway, which is in Southern California on a Wednesday night, and I think it cost like a dollar seventy-five or something to enter the race, and we might win two dollars and seventy-five cents. I remember the signing for my money and thinking, you know, "I got three dollars. I made enough to pay for my entry." And 
couple gallons of gas to get myself home. And then I would go on Thursday night to this other place in northern Los Angeles area called Southgate Speedway. And then uh, I didn't go to Ascot until I turned 18, but I would go to a, another scrambles race on Saturday night in Elsinore Raceway. And that was out in uh, kind of, not the desert necessarily, but it was sort of like high desert areas, sort of out west of Los Angeles, and then ride another scrambled race at Paris Raceway, which they still run out there today. So I'd be riding four or five times a, a week when I turned 16. And so when I turned 18, well, by then, I had already gotten the attention of OSA. And uh, my first sponsor, I was about 16 or 17 years old, and I was still in high school, and OSA gave me free motorcycles. And the race manager at the time of OSA, was, his name was Kenny Clark who some people may know that went on to be the race manager for Yamaha when Kenny, when Kenny Roberts was uh, under his you know, tutorism, I guess. So uh, I was riding that at the Scrambles races and riding motocross. And uh, when I turned 18, BSA uh, gave me uh, a B25 and tuned by this guy named Ken Noggle to race professionally at Ascot. So now I was racing Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And, you know, uh, I think a lot of people today, you know, when they start racing, it seems like, gosh, their parents buy them a motorcycle when they're four or five years old. And by the time they're, you know, 15 years old, you know, they've got a lot of experience under their belt. And then they start to ride professionally and they have all the uh, time and experience that they're all, you know, uh, aware of how to ride a motorcycle. Whereas when I started back in the, you know, 60s, yeah, I started, you know, like I said, at 14 years old, and I, you know, started to uh, learn more and more how to ride as I was, you know, getting older. And I, I think to myself, you know, sometimes uh, when I raced against Freddie Spencer, when he came on the scene, and I was like 26 or some years old, he uh, he already had more experience in time on a motorcycle than I did. Uh, wow. So, you know, starting out early, I think, is very beneficial to people who want to be a professional racer today. And so I, I continued with BSA uh, as a novice, and I won some TT races on the, on the BSA. I could not do worth a crap on the uh, half miles. It was just too slow. Uh, there was a guy by the name of Keith Mashburn, who a lot of people know from the movie on any Sunday going through a program for a post, was a hot novice at the time. And I, I could beat him on the TTs, but I couldn't beat him on the short, uh, short tracks or, or half miles at the time. But I started, you know, like I guess a lot of kids, you know, with a little CC motorcycle and gradually worked up to 250ccs and then 650s and 750s. Uh, but to answer your, your question, my, my dad bought me a motorcycle when I was 14. <laughs> yeah, like I said, thank God you didn't start that Vespa, man. That would have been uh, a catastrophe for all of us race fans. You know, we'd, we'd never know who that crazy <laughs> kid from Santa Ana was. So yeah, uh, just some. Yeah. It's just funny the way some things work out, you know. Uh, you know, obviously a product of, uh, I mean, Southern California racing in general, but of course, a lot of people, you know, uh, uh, know you from on any Sunday and, and uh, you know, and also Ascot. And talking about Ascot, it's not often that we get to talk to a guy that was, uh, you know, there during the heyday of the sport not only were you there 
you were uh, you were a force to be reckoned with at Ascot uh, during its you know the 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 pinnacle of that place. So it's a real honor to talk to somebody like you that's been there and done it, and uh, you know who's who's you know done interviews with guys like Roxy Rockwood and and uh, dealt with guys like uh, you know gotten handshakes and money from J.C. Agajanian. So from somebody that's been there <laughs> firsthand, you know what what are some of the uh, some of the I, I'm sure you got a bag full of stories about Ascot and, you know, Roxy Rockwood and JC, but uh, what are, what are some of your best and maybe even a couple of your worst memories from that time? I think, well, Ascot was one of the kind of tracks. They, unfortunately, at least two people would get killed a year there. It was the kind of surface that was very unforgiving. It was like clay. Uh, actually, it was sort of weird, the dirt there, because the uh, Agajanian, uh, just a little back, story on him. He picked up the trash for all of Beverly Hills and Hollywood area, the father agitated, who also sponsored the IndyCars. And he would pick up the trash, and, you know, Beverly Hills trash is not the normal kind of trash that, you know, I might be used to, you know, just <laughs> do that trash is trash. But what he would do is he'd take that trash, and he had, like, these hogs behind Ascot, and he'd throw all that trash over there, and those hogs and pigs and whatever would eat everything. They would eat everything and then leave the metal. And then he'd take, pick up all the metal and take it to the scrapyard and get the money for the scrapyard. So the dirt that he used was a combination of pig shit and uh, good clay, I guess, to where it was like very unforgiving. If he fell down, it was like I used to describe to people. It was like throwing a dart into soft clay. It would just stick. And if it was your elbow or your knee that went into the dirt, that's where it stuck, and then the rest of your body with momentum would get thrown uh, somewhere else, and it would, you know, it would it would definitely do some damage to your body. And the, and the dirt clods were so, I guess, unique in the sense that uh, the tires, even though the small Pirelli tire, would throw dirt back on the other riders, and even with padding, uh, maybe a half inch of foam padding in our leathers. It would leave black and blue and yellow welts on your chest and on your arms. Uh, it was it was one of those tracks where you you had to really have some courage to get around there. And it really wasn't a half mile; it was a half mile on the outside, uh, uh, you know, on the inside. Where they measured, where they did not measure, it wasn't a half mile. But I I started there when uh, they started or just ended where Ascot would pay, I want to say, 40% of the gate. And they would get like four or 5,000 people every Friday night. And it was actually a big, big payday for the riders that, you know, showed up and won there. Sammy Tanner was the hot dog guy, and Al Gunner were winning all the races when I showed up. And when I first went there, I, I really didn't watch too much of the races. I just kind of went to hang around with the other kids that were kind of, you know, hanging around the fence and watching Sparks come off their steel shoe. That... Uh, that kind of ended, AMA put an end to that, which I always thought was sort of a weird situation that the AMA in Ohio was able to tell the people in California how much money they could make. And they, they took a, a pay decrease uh, when they got involved. But uh, as a novice, you know, I saw a guy, unfortunately, you know, hit the wall and die. And, and it didn't, didn't frighten me. It just gave me a little bit more respect about the place that anything could happen. And, uh, they, like like he said, uh, Agajanian was really concerned about the riders uh, and that he wanted to make sure that they were compensated. And so he did the best he could to 
make sure that, you know, as a novice, we made pretty good money. I don't remember what it was back then, but it was a pretty good chunk of money. And as an expert, they always had some contingency money. But uh, they, uh, they unfortunately, you know, uh, end up selling the, the property to Toyota to build some sort of car manufacturing place and found out that the, after they let the ground settle for five years or something, it still wasn't stable enough to withstand a tall building because, again, the dirt underneath it was composed of all kinds of stuff, you know. But uh, there wasn't, you know, there was a, a lot of occasion we'd come in from the race and there could be a nail stuck in a number plate, a bolt stuck in the, you know, fork leg or something that because of the cars uh, would be losing parts or there'd be parts of the fence that would come undone. And as a motorcycle guy, you know, uh, it was, it was, you'd be surprised at stuff we'd run over or catch on a motorcycle. Like I said, you know, nails, bolts would be embedded in a motorcycle number plate or in the forks. It, it was, it was pretty scary in that Man. regard. But, you know, there was a few guys that came from, uh, the Midwest and uh, Michigan area that did really well, you know Scott Parker, Jay Springsteen. Those those a few guys that could come down there and actually, you know, tame Ascot Garthbrow was another one that that did well there. But it was hard uh, because of the uniqueness. You know, it was a small half mile and had different kind of dirt, and it it it, it, it was definitely the breeding grounds for a lot of young young racers. I know Kenny Roberts was successful there, you know, Gene Romero, Mert Lawwell. These are all guys that a lot of people probably don't even remember hearing about but were in the movie on any Sunday that, that you mentioned, which did a lot for motorcycles. Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, so much to talk about. You know, we could probably have a whole, you know, series of shows when it comes to, you know, that racetrack, Ascot, and, and it's – you know, it's really good to hear from people like you that were there firsthand, uh, that that lived through it. And uh, I mean, I was uh, I was young enough to to or old enough, should I say, to to go to races there. Uh, but unfortunately, I just missed it and never got to race there. But I, I witnessed races there, and I, I I mean, speaking for myself, there's no place that uh, for me that comes close to Ascot. How about for you? I mean, you're a guy that's raced all around the world. Is there is there any other places that kind of reminded you, you know, when you went to other regions of the country where you dealt with local guys that were, you know, uh, you know, I guess as tough as they come from from the racetracks they raced yeah. on? Or? Yeah, I, I think every part of America, uh, you know, had had this little unique little spot. I, I remember, you know, uh, Ascot being a weekly Friday night thing, and then every first Saturday or the last Saturday of the month, they had a TT race that I really liked because they had a real TT track that had right and left-hand turns where a person had to know how to use the brakes, front brake, to, to, to get around there. I think a lot of TT tracks today are just kind of superficial in that they have a little dog leg to the right, and it's not really a right-hand turn, so people don't have to know how to ride the motorcycle in each direction, right and left, and use the front brakes. But, you know, when we uh, left um, uh, California and went back east, there were places like uh, Chicago. It was a place called Hinsdale, Illinois, that had a weekly program of short track races. And there were some tough guys there. I mean, we would come in there thinking that we were going to blow everybody off. And there'd be guys like Charlie Chappell or Mike Kidd or uh, some local yokel guy that could really, you know, go fast on their local track. And, You'd go to other places uh, like Granite City, which is outside of St. Louis, Missouri, and there'd be some guys down there in the, in the Midwest that could go pretty fast. Uh, 
Mike Gerald, Daryl Hurst, uh, to mention a few. But uh, you always kind of had to suspect or expect uh, some, you know, local yokel guy coming out uh, at a national event and actually performing really, really above his normal riding ability and and get a lot of attention. It was funny how uh, you would never hear of these guys until a national kind of came into their backyard and we'd ride uh, on their track. And like I said, they, they would somehow find that little extra spurt of energy or that extra little speed that, and then, and then you'd never hear of them again. You know, the next week you'd have a local race and the guy wouldn't even make the main event. Uh, I think, you know, that Ascot was unique because there was a lot of good guys that came from there. Um, came from there, but there was also, you know, other parts of America that that you know supplied uh, American flat trackers with good flat trackers. That that Hinsdale and St. Louis were just a couple of them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there there was pockets all over the country. You know, Pacific Northwest with Castle Rock, and oh, yeah. you know, there's Michigan right. guys, Ohio guys. I mean. Uh, there, there was racing down in Texas. I mean, yeah, there was a lot of pockets, you know, for sure. And uh, I guess those are uh, days gone by, you know. But, you know, Flat Track is making a comeback now. And in a lot of these places, I know uh, you live down in uh, Georgia now, correct? Yes, I do. Uh, yeah, it's a different part of the world, you know. And it's funny that, you know, you bring up that I'm in Atlanta. And it seems like all the years that I raced professionally, dirt tracking and road racing, we always went to these cities all around America and around the world, and we raced at the best time of the year. And now that I'm in Atlanta, I'm experiencing freezing winters, hot and humid summers, <laughs> and uh, they have four seasons here for sure, as opposed to California, where it's only one season. It's always summertime. We're always in shorts and, and uh, flip-flops. We're here. Always you know, looking good with a tan. On the winter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I'm adjusting to the four seasons. And I, I don't mind the heat. Uh, I just don't like the freezing cold for some reason. Uh, it's just an inconvenience for me to pile on more clothes. Well, I'm a California guy, too. I've transplanted to Pennsylvania, so uh, I, I'm with you, man. I'm in the same <laughs> boat. You know, I, I, people ask yeah. me what it's like living back on the East Coast. I said, well, it's kind of like miserable nine months out of the year, you know, <laughs> so it's either hot, cold and a little bit of in between, you know, but, you know, like yeah. I said, you know, like, I, you know, my original point with that was, you know, a lot of racing is popping back up all over the country. I mean, I know there's a lot of racing happening in, in, you know, in the Carolinas and Georgia and, you know, talking about, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, in the South all over, I see, Southeast, you know, one of, yeah. yeah, one of the, the, the things is, I mean, you've had, uh, aside from your professional career, I mean, you've had one of the. I mean, I think you've raced in probably seven decades and probably, I mean, I'm not, you know, uh, a, a factual numbers guy, but you probably raced for close to 55 years now. Uh, you've had a long career. I mean, that spanned a, a lot of time. I'm not calling you old because I know most racers <laughs> aren't much older than their racing, you know, the years they've been yeah. racing. You know, like I said, such a long career that, how have you been able or, or how were you able to, to maintain such a such a long career even after after your professional career? I you know, I, I see what people do today in regards to training and their diet and I when I came on the scene, uh I'd already kind of been brought up with I think I guess you know, the the right sort of frame of mind on how to approach life and uh uh excelling in certain things and 
I remember a football coach and track coach would say some things. And I, I, I played football on the little guy's teams uh, in, in high school, junior high and high school. And I, I ran the 120 low hurdles in high school and I pole vaulted. And uh, again, I played football. And the coach, you know, said, you know, you have to make sacrifices if you want to get things in, 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 in uh, your life or your, you know, sport. And so we had to eat right and, and, and not stay out late and party with all the other high school kids. And so I, at the very beginning, I learned kind of that, that, that basic thing about taking care of my body. And when I got into the motorcycle uh, part after I got out of high school, and I started college, actually, and I thought, well, and BSA approached me and said they want to give me a bunch of money to go back east and race motorcycles. And I thought, well, I can always, if I lose a leg or an arm, I can always come back and train my brain. But I only have this one chance to ride motorcycles. So when I started riding motorcycles back east as an amateur, I already had the mindset of you want to get out what you put into it. And I already was, and I still had a, a, some records in high school for weightlifting. I forget what the record was, a dips or I think I did a I don't know how many dips and the record lasted like for 15 years or something. So somebody went after it and, and broke it. But I was one, I think I thought to myself and I'm pretty sure I was one of the few guys that the motorcycle racing for me was a full-time job for these other guys like Bart Markle. I remember, and he was a hot dog guy. He, uh, would work at AC Spark Plugs in Detroit somewhere, and then he'd drive all day Saturday morning to get to the races by Sunday, and then he'd have to race on Sunday, then drive all the way back so he'd get to work on Monday. And most guys, like Larry Pongram, uh was another one, they had jobs that they had, and they were successful racers, and they had jobs they had to get back to. And so I didn't have that. I, I was going to the gym Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I was running five miles a day and not just in, uh, you know, shorts. I had on the full on hooded sweatshirt and long pants and, you know, long sweatpants and trying to emulate, you know, my leathers being on. The only thing I didn't do was put my helmet on and run around the damn block, but it was almost like that. But I, I really took it seriously. I ate well and I trained and I would ride my motorcycle. I'd ride like two tanks of gas at Saddleback Park. It was a motocross uh, playground area. I'd run through two tanks of gas on my motorcycle. It was the Osa, Kawasaki, Suzuki. And so when I went to the races, I was ready to go. I didn't have to, you know, get in the mood or, or, or get, you know, familiar with the motorcycle. And these other four guys that were driving all across America to get to the races, I had them beat before we even got started, I think, because I'd already gotten there a day before. I got myself in the hotel room. I had a good meal, a good night's sleep, and uh, was ready to rock and roll on Sunday. And and it proved out. And, you know, now I, I see guys, you know, that have personal trainers because I guess, you know, they need somebody to tell them how to eat and what to do. Whereas I, I kind of just took it upon myself and whatever ached and hurt on the motorcycle after a race, that was what I worked on in the gym, you know, my forearms were, were pumping up or something. I'd work on things at the gym that would eliminate those sort of things or squats or, or all kinds of different exercises that would help me, you know, with my motorcycles. So I, 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 and I still today, you know, you mentioned how did I make it all this time? I still have, uh, that same sort of work ethic that I, I don't go to, especially now with the COVID virus, I haven't been able to go. Um, and when I do go, my wife is very, you know, uh, 
kind of not angry with me, but she knows that I'm jeopardizing my health by going and, and you know, putting myself in that situation where I could get sick. But I still go to the gym. I still work out three times a week. Uh, I don't run anymore because I don't think it's good for my knees. But I do exercises and ride a bicycle, uh, you know, at the gym. And I still try to eat right. You know, I, I know that if I was going to race on Sunday, it, what I ate on Friday would be what I'd race on Sunday. And, you know, I've gained a few pounds over the years, but I, I still, you know, have you know, the ability to get on a motorcycle and ride a bunch of races. Uh, and I ride motocross, you know, uh, sometimes on, at some of these armor events that I go to. So to answer your original question, I know I kind of go off on the tangent, but I still am conscious of my body and, and, and what I put into it. Uh, I, I think sometimes I look back, I wish I wouldn't have put so much alcohol into it, but. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that actually I'm kind of surprised, to be honest with you. I mean, everybody, you know, kind of has this uh, impression of racers of the 70s, you know, as being just uh, kind of free spirit guys that didn't put a whole lot into the you know, into training programs or anything like that, that were drinking beers the the Friday night before races kind of deal. And uh, so I've kind of taken that, you know, you were kind of a trendsetter with uh, with your work ethic and your in your workout program. Uh, you know, I think yeah. that's really cool. And not, I mean, you know, I mean, I guess that's something that stays true with a lot of aspects of your life being a trendsetter. Uh, you know, talking to you, we got to we got to bring up the bones leathers. You know, those are, have to be, uh, I guess, I probably well, what, some of the most what, iconic what leathers is, in racing. Yeah. Well, before I get on to the bonus, I must say that, you know, if you, if you train hard, we play hard because after all the training and uh, after the race are over, we definitely played hard. We would go, you know, you brought up Ascot. There was a, a bar across the street we would all go to, and we all had a rip roaring time after the races. So we, we, we trained hard and we party hard. So, <laughs> but that, that, that was the way, you know, we did. There were some guys that were a bad example of, you know, physical fitness, but they, they knew how to ride a motorcycle. But the longevity, I think, proved out to go to the guys who, who trained and, and, and put the effort into it. And, you know, you, you brought up the bones, leathers, and I say jokingly, with a little bit of seriousness, you know, I've won, you know, uh, regional championships, state championships, national championships. I've won world championship races around the world. And people remember me most for the letters than they do of my other accomplishments. But I know now that uh, when I go to these races, uh, I ride, you know, old bikes with old guys and I wear the bones leathers uh, at those events. And I know, that it looks a little corny, you know, uh, to me when I put them on, but I know that's what the people remember me for and always bring up something about them that, you know, I'm so professional. So I give them what the spectators want, you know, I give them what they want. And that happens to be one of the things uh, is the, the, those letters. And it, it stirred up a lot of controversy when they first came up uh, because the AMA thought that I wasn't being very professional, but I also thought that the AMA was not being very professional in the way they treated us and what we were racing for at the time, uh, peanuts to say, I think even, uh, to say that, you know, what we should have been making and what we could be making even today as a professional racer that is doing something that could, could cost you your life or arm or a limb. And uh, the compensation that the riders are getting, I think today uh, is not comparable to the risk they take. And, you know, when I came up with the Bones Leathers, it was to show them that, you know, I could do it without 
uh, them. And uh, it, it it was real tough at first, and I didn't really know how it was going to come across. But, you know, uh, when I tell potential sponsors that I'm going to be on the cover of this magazine, I'm going to get a lot of publicity, I'm going to win races, I did. And the Bones Leathers, you know, helped uh, accomplish all those things. Because, you know, you go out there with a set of leathers like that, you better damn well race good or you're going to look like, a, you know, <laughs> a laughing stock. So I, 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 I probably performed as well as I could, you know, under those circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah, know, the Bones I... Leathers. Yeah, I mean, I I can't, you know, personally. I, anytime I see a skeleton, I, I I automatically think of you to this day, just because those leathers are so, I, so iconic, you know. I wish I could have. Uh, I forget what you call it exactly. Where you, I can't get a patent on it, but if I could have <laughs> merchandised it and, and been able to like coin in off of that, because gosh, you see bones on all kinds of. You know, motorcycle apparel. The stock car guys are even wearing gloves with bones on the outside. I I, I wish uh, I'd have had enough insight to uh, have been able to, you know, I forget what it's called exactly, but to, to make 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 a good chunk of money off of it because and it did change the way that people, you know, looked at leather suits. It wasn't just a, a black suit with, uh, you know. Uh, Harley Davidson across the chest or a BSA across the chest. It kind of opened up to where. You know, your imagination is, you know, is open wide open to where you could, you know, if you can think of it and design it, those people can stitch it and color it and put it together and make a suit out of it. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, you had some other iconic leathers over the years. You know, uh, you were Superman one year, and I, I think you also had a set of leathers that were, had a, I guess were, I don't know, were they a pack of cigarettes or a cigarette or? Yeah, I was, yeah, I, I. I think during the wintertime and off season, I sit around watching television or thinking of things, and uh, I, I I just came up with things that I thought would, you know, uh, I don't want to say necessarily get attention, but would work well in the profession that I chose. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of people, and and they they have obligations, you know, if you have an oil sponsor, you know, you got to put their their, 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 their emblem on your leathers. And I had uh, obligations that I put them in a place that, you know, would, would pacify the, the potential sponsors, but not necessarily take away from what I was trying to design on the front of them. Because I knew, you know, uh, what I had to do to, to, to stay in the profession and give them, you know, their money's worth. So, but yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's ironic that, you know, the Bones leathers have kind of withstood uh, all, the, all this time. I mean, you got to think that's, Shit, 35 40 years ago <laughs> yeah man too bad you didn't you couldn't get the royalties off bones because you'd be a you'd be a pretty wealthy man at this point just off of that yeah yeah no yeah. doubt not you know another thing you know i you know i just i, I personally man i'm kind of always you know a fan of guys that do cool things with leathers and helmets and that's another cool thing you did you know when you think of iconic helmets you know uh i guess you think of like joey dunlop's helmet you think of barry sheen's helmet you might think of kenny roberts you know with the eagle on it there's some iconic helmets out there and of course another iconic helmet of motorcycle racing is uh the david aldana a i'll just it looks so it's so cool man it's so simple and it's badass just like who came <laughs> who came up with that was that another like winter I, idea or was, what I, actually when i was riding in norton about 1972 there was a guy named peter williams had a w on his on the bottom part of his helmet and kind of had a little bit of a w on top of the top of his visor 
And uh, so I was at Ascot, and I had some red duct tape, and I put red duct tape on the top of my helmet. And what really made me think that it was a good idea was when I started looking at photographs, no matter if it was daytime or nighttime or a closed-knit pack of riders, that A stood out on top of all the pictures, on top of all, everything. And so I had to have my helmet sponsors paint that onto my helmet from then on. And it basically was an idea I got from a guy named Peter Wiz, W. But he never, he never kind of, I guess, got the notoriety that I did. And so to answer your question, gosh, it was another one of those that I, I, I got it from somebody else. <laughs> I, I came over with just red duct tape. Yeah, was still still a trendsetter though. It's still a trendsetter, and not only a trendsetter. I mean, you've been a, an ambassador of the sport for a long time. I mean, you know that goes all the way back from, uh, you know, I would say. I mean, obviously in recent times you've gone over to England, done some riding over there. Uh, you're representing, you know, flat track on a world level, and you also represented the United States uh, in the mid '70s. Uh, during the transatlantic match races, you went over there. I believe it was 1975. Was it with Kenny Roberts and Pat Hennon? Yeah, yeah, that was on. I was on a Suzuki then, but we went over in 1971, I believe, on BSA triples was the first time we went over there. It was the BSA and Triumph teams. Then after that, they started uh, Gavin Tripp, who promoted all that, tried to pick out the best guys. It didn't matter to go over and represent America, and it didn't matter if they were on a TZ750 or Suzuki or Kawasaki or, or, or Harley-Davidson. Uh, they tried to get a group of guys over that would, you know, uh, commit themselves to go over there. But, it, you know, it was quite uh, – I don't at the time, I didn't look at it like you're describing it as an honor to represent America, you know. But uh, I guess in, in that respect, it, it was. And But, you know, having said that, when I went to Japan or France or Italy or Indonesia and the American flag would go up, I was very, very proud to represent America, even though sometimes I thought to myself, I'm not the best representative that they should be watching. But I knew, and, and it's, 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 it's strange, but some of the racetracks that I had the privilege of riding at, we'd have, no kidding, 160,000 people would be at the races. 140,000 was no big deal in, in, in Europe. 160,000 in, in Japan. And I knew, at least I did in my mind, I knew that all those people in those grandstands looking down and they were judging America by what they saw me do on that motorcycle. And so I always had, I thought to myself, not that added pressure, but I, I had to make sure that I gave it everything I could. And I always think to myself, sometimes, for example, when we were in Japan, it's hot and humid. And I think it took two minutes and 18 seconds to get around there. And I, I, I could see that I had another, you know, four laps to go or another lap to go. I used to say to myself, it's only two minutes out of your life, David. You can do just two more minutes and you'll be done. And I used to just tell myself that, Everyone is judging America by the way that I ride. And I always used to think, and I still think today, winners never quit and quitters never win. A uh, little cliche that run through my head. But, uh, you know, when we started going to the Anglo-American transatlantic match races, uh, it got to be, you know, a real stepping stone for guys like Freddie Spencer and Kenny Roberts to see uh, and compare themselves against uh, other world champions like for example Barry Sheen was world champion at the time and we ran with them I mean it was like well here's a world champion we can go as fast as this guy can 
and and they really thought we were going to suck in the rain because uh, America, if it rained, it sprinkled, we didn't race. Where in Europe, it rains all the time, so there was no big deal for them to race in the rain. And so when we lined up, I think at Olsen Park, one of the, the third race of the three race series, we we did really good. Uh, and we had never you know ridden in the rain, but we had some hand cut rain tires, and we definitely showed them that we know how to ride motorcycles. The other thing too is. When we went over there, uh, we only rode road races in America maybe four or five, maybe five or six times a year. Well, over there, we got there, we raced Friday, Saturday, and I think it was Easter Monday. Well, come after riding the motorcycle for three or four days in a row, by the fourth day, we were pretty, we, we got the hang of it. We were doing actually a lot better on the fourth day than we were on the first day because we didn't have to relearn how to ride a, a, a road bike on, on pavement. You know, on a dirt bike, you kind of use the phone and around, sliding it and losing traction. And then, you know, tra- training during the midweek to do what it was going to do, you know, slip or slide or push and run in or whatever. But the road racing was the finest art of all the races that I'd ever done because. You had to really know how to use the front brake. You really had to know how much traction you had with the back end or, the, or how much grip you had with the front end when you turned into the, the corners. And uh, it, 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 took, it took all of your experience that you'd gathered up and all the other stuff you'd done in racing to do a, a really good road race. And, you know, when we went over there, like I said, the first time on BSA and Triumphs, we, we, held, we held our own. And there was a couple of times that, you know, uh, that I ended up high point uh, rider of, of, of the series. Uh, and there were other times, you know, uh, that I didn't do quite as well. But uh, it, it, it was, like I said, it was a stepping stone for others. Like Freddie Spencer, when he went over there, all of a sudden he got a lot of people's attention. And they thought, well, this guy can race with Kenny Roberts and Barry Sheen. And uh, they, uh, you know, got him right up. There were other guys that did well there. I think Mike Baldwin was another one. Yvonne Hamel, you know, did pretty good there in Nixon, but they had already kind of made their name in road racing in America. But, you know, uh, in in all that, it also put an end to Americans going over there and racing because when we went over there, Freddie Spencer, uh, Eddie Loss, and Kenny Roberts, we were really trying to win the races. And if somebody fell down and got hurt, they screwed them up for the rest of the Honda factory or the Yamaha factory contract they may have had. So, they put the mix on us going over there and riding because it may uh, uh, jeopardize our chances of doing something in the series that is going to be that we would be competing on the rest of the year. So not only was it a good place to get started, it also was a place where it all ended because you know things would happen that you know we couldn't see. But it opened my eyes to you know there's a lot more than news, weather, and sports. Uh, there's you know, I, I and I got good grades in high school. I, I made the honor honor roll my senior year. So when I went to Europe, I would see the buildings and the and the streets and the countryside of everything that read about in my history books. And then now I was getting to experience it firsthand and witnessing some of the things that I saw uh, and experienced were like very, you know, uh, mind 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 opening. I think traveling broadens your horizons. You see things. Now, I knew I was supposed to race motorcycles. That was my job. And I made sure it was a job that I made money at. But I also took the time and smelled the roses, so to speak. I I, I took in all as much as I could. And I think that also, you know, talking about racing in Europe and representing America, I think that was one of the 
things that I was able to do, and that is I, I really enjoyed the, 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 the different countries and the different foods where uh, Kenny Roberts and, and Dale Singleton and others, they, they couldn't handle the European life. You know, they have a different lifestyle altogether, and the food is different. I remember one time I was uh, with we're staying at Barry Sheen's house, Dale Singleton and myself, and uh, I asked Dale what he had because he was working on his motorcycle. I asked him what he had in that big old box, an extra engine. And he says, no, 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 no. I said, well, what's in that box? And he wouldn't tell me for uh, maybe a half a day or something. Well, he finally opened up the box. And in this box, and he had to pay for all that freight to get over from, uh, you know, Dalton, Georgia, over to England. He had that box like the size of a big engine. He had it full of baked beans and tuna <laughs> and Campbell's soup and all this canned stuff. <laughs> he was eating. He couldn't eat English food. He didn't he couldn't stand it. Uh so I mean I, I I enjoyed that part of it and I still do uh, you know enjoy traveling and and seeing things and even in America you know I I, I like I'm leaving for Ashtabula Ohio tomorrow and uh, you know that time behind the steering wheel it gives me an opportunity to think of you know what my life and and what I'm doing and how much I've enjoyed it and you know you said about being a a, a person that represents America and American motorcyclists. This is my way of giving back to the sport. I'll never give back my money, but this is my, this is my way of giving back to, you know, uh, answering people's questions. Where before, when I was racing, I was caught up in my own little world and just, you know, signed autographs and posed for pictures. Where now, I actually, when I sign an autograph or someone asks me for one, I actually look at them, make eye contact, I shake their hand, I make a little connection. And if I see something that I maybe can say to somebody to help them ride or improve their motorcycle setup or whatever, I, I'm I'm free and willing to and able to to do that. I will do that, and it's my way of you know uh, staying involved with the sport. Uh, and, and I say sport now because that's how I look at it. It's not like this is how I'm making my living. I used to always think to myself. Uh, not that, you know, being a carpenter or IT tech person on computers isn't a, a good job, but I could have gotten a job. Like I said, I started college. I could have gotten a job at, you know, whatever I wanted to do, I guess, at the time. I, I always thought to myself, when I'm racing motorcycles, I had to make money. I didn't want to make a living. I wanted to make money. And so I, I, I always, from the very beginning, when I had those free motorcycles, the OSA and the BSA, I I know it sounds a little egotistical, but I always ask for the moon. And if I didn't get there, I got halfway there, and I was able to save my money. I lived at home with my parents until I was 28. That I I saved my money and I invested it in real estate. And so I because I knew that motorcycle racing is not a career that you can have for 50 years and get a gold watch at the end of your career. It was one of those uh, situations where. You know, maybe if you could make it last 10 years, that'd be great. Well, knock on wood, I've never had to get a job, and I've been able to parlay the investments I made to where, you know, I don't have to worry about the government taking care of my old pension needs that I'm I'm, fight, I'm facing now that I'm 70 years old. But I I think, you know, representing America, traveling the world, around the world, uh, gave me opportunities to experience and see things that only other people only dream about or read about in books. And uh, I'm very, very fortunate. I enjoy what I'm doing still today. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it all started 
you know, riding that BSA motorcycle at the match races in England. Wow. Wow. Now I, you know, you, you, you know, not to jump back and forth a little bit and totally shift gears, but you know, uh, obviously when, uh, I think of you and many people think of you. We, we refer back to on any Sunday and that crazy kid from Santa Ana. And uh, you talked about the bar across the street from Ascot and you talk about hanging out with guys like Barry Sheen. Uh, you know, who, who's uh, who is the best or maybe the worst party uh, you, you hung out with <laughs> around the world? I, I mean, think the you, worst party was Ricky Graham. That poor guy, that guy, <laughs> I had to tell him, go to bed. Go away, leave me alone. He would he would stay up uh, way too late. But uh, in my era, you know, at the peak, uh, you know, Gene Romero, Chuck Pongram, you know, and I, you can't talk bad of these guys because some of them have passed on and others are still alive. But, you know, we and even Lalo and Cal Rayburn and, and Jerry Nixon, we even though we rode different brands of motorcycles, we always seem to end up at the same hotel drinking at the same bar or ending up in the same, you know, somebody's room and then carrying on, you know, with the, with the party and whatnot. That we all got along really good together. And if somebody needed a sprocket, we loaned it to each other. If they needed a bike hauled someplace, we hauled it for them. Uh, today's motorcycle uh, riders, I think, are, are so different. And I know the profession has changed a bit, but, and social media has caused that to happen. But I think, you know, back in the day, you know, we, we all – seem to to know our limits so when we partied you know we we, we did it you know uh, in, in the right frame of mind but now you know having said that uh the stuff we were doing back then we'd be arrested for today i mean the stuff that we got away i don't say got away with but the things we did for fun you know uh, you could not do today uh just because of social media and the image that the guys have to keep up and and they may be they, they, I guess they wouldn't know what they're missing because they, they've never done it. So, and maybe in some regards, you know, what, what you don't know can't hurt them. But you know, we all all made it through. We all lived. I mean, I think sometimes you know we'd go to the motel room and somebody would have some Roman candles or bottle rockets and we'd be shooting across the balcony and we'd be hitting cars and windows and breaking stuff. And you know, if we did any damage, we'd pay for it. It wasn't like we'd tear down the hotel and then run away. You know. Uh, but you know, we we would we would pay for the stuff we wrecked. Uh, so, but you know, thank you for your question. Everybody had a little bit of of, of uh, partiness inside them. I mean, even though say Mert Lava, you know, was a Harley guy, and the Harley uh, Davidson race manager would find his riders a hundred dollars for every beer they drank. Gary Scott, when he went for, for, for Harley, he would take his take up into his room a big brown bag that had a bottle of whiskey and a couple of liters of coca-cola cal rayburn and Bible, they, they, they they drink with us in, in the room and, and we go down and dance in the bar a little bit you know but every, all of us you know there wasn't one that was better or one that was worse other than like i said ricky grand like to stay up late but uh <laughs> we all we all enjoyed life i think you know back in the yeah. 70s was, was another era you know you mentioned the movie on any sunday it changed the way people looked at motorcyclists. Before, when I would go to Thanksgiving or Christmas parties with my relatives and they would ask what I was doing, I would mention to them that I ride motorcycles. And the first thing that came to their mind was Hells Angels, Black Leathers, uh, Easy Rider, that, that negative connotation of a motorcycle. And when the Any Sunday came out, it showed in a different altogether. It really.
as a, a living, breathing uh, uh, occupation that could be looked up to, you know. And then it, it changed because motocross all started getting big. Flat track was at its same in the seventies and eighties. It, uh, it 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 was it was big, and moving any Sunday changed the way that people looked at uh, our profession. You know, when we were racing in the heyday, there would be like 170 guys trying to qualify for 48 spots. Uh, like, for example, at the Astrodome. I, I remember one time, I think I was the second or third alternate to the heat race because I didn't qualify. They only took like 48 guys, and I was fastest, you know, of those guys. And I was like, you know, maybe, like I said, second or third alternate. And I was able, because of somebody crashed in one of the races, and restart the races, and they, they could make it, and they put an alternate. I got, I made the main event, the national, through being an alternate. So the competition back in the seventies and eighties was was much more stiffer than it is today. I think in the in the sense that, you know, any one of those sixteen guys or twelve guys that lined up for the main event back in the day had an opportunity of winning the race. Uh, and like you said, they came from all over America, and the Astrodome drew them all there because it was the first race of the year. So uh, you know. I, I think, you know, on any Sunday captured that time. Uh, and I say, you know, humbly that I happen to be at the right place at the right time because even though other racers have come before and after me, they had just as good a career as I have. But because I was at the right time and the right place, that movie has kept my name alive and in public and in the public eye way longer than, than, than I deserve. And I said, you know, earlier to other people, still today, and, and, and I'm going to say it again, I'm sure, down the road, that when those people come up to me or the parents of the children come up to me and they'll say something along the line, this is that guy that was in that movie. Well, the little kid that's only 10 or 12 years old or younger doesn't realize that that movie was 50 years ago and that I'm not 18 years old anymore, that it has you know changed over the years, but it's kept my name out there in the public side, which... I'd be forever grateful to Bruce Brown. I mean, he did a lot for motorcycles and a lot for, you think about it, Malcolm Smith, Mort Rawl, myself, and Gene Romero's racing career, and Jim Rice for breaking his nose, you know. So the movie on any Sunday did, did wonders for a few people in particular. Did wonders for motorcycling. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard and, and how many influences, uh, uh, you know, that have had effect on different people uh, uh, that we call heroes because of that movie. So it, it's, uh, it's, it's standard, you know, stood the test of time and uh, is uh, like many people, it's my all time favorite movie. I know you're running a little short on time, so I wish we could talk forever, but I only have a few more quick questions for you because we are running short on time and I want to respect your time. Um, but um, you know, you, you mentioned, on any Sunday. And there's another movie I want to talk about real quick. And uh, I used to be the coolest kid on my block because I had a copy of it. Uh, and I got a copy of it. It was called The Thrill Is On. I know you know what I'm talking about. I got a copy uh -huh. of it handed to me by uh, a guy that had a uh, went on to have a motorcycle museum, flat track mo museum in Clovis, California. His name was Danny Ruitt. And as, as a matter of fact, oh, he yeah. was uh, 
paralyzed from an accident he had as a pro novice at Ascot. Anyway, I, I became friends with Danny and, um, you know, and, and Dan one day I uh, handed, I saw, he, we watched that movie together and I was like, no way. Cause I mean, other than on any Sunday in cycle news, I'd never seen anything come to life before uh, about the heyday of the sport. And, and I got to watch that movie and I was so impressed infatuated with it that uh dan ruitt actually handed me a copy of it and so for a lot of years that movie wasn't out i was the coolest kid on the block man i had nobody had it and uh i was i would refer to it as a it's a good home movie of myself in that the guys that made that movie were two surfer guys that copied uh uh bruce brown's first movie called end of the summer they made a surfing movie after that and these guys were still in college and they went on any sunday came out they they just more or less copied what Bruce Brown did, and but used me as the the, the star of the thing or the, the lead feature, and uh, they made it and they they drove all around America and they rented cameras and they did all the editing and they did all this and uh, to, to make it and then we sh- they showed it in a couple theaters in uh, Southern California and then the, the the hippie surfer guys ran out of money and so it came out. And maybe was out for maybe a few months, and then one guy moved to Mexico, another guy uh, went to Colorado or something. Anyway, so it stayed in storage for about I don't know, for 30 years or 25 years or something like that. And a high school buddy of mine by the name of Don Daniels uh, called me up and asked me if I couldn't locate it. So I made some phone calls and found out where it was stored. And the guy, uh, I can't remember what his name is offhand, but we found it in the storage garage in Costa Mesa, Southern California. And he said, uh, here it is. And he gave us, I don't know how many reels of film. And uh, so, and we asked him what he wanted for it. He said, nothing, just take it. And when you're done with it, give it back to me. So we took it and we went to Hollywood and we had it colorized uh, to, to bring in the, the color part of it. And then we had it digitized. And uh, then we started to redistribute it again, or my, my high school buddy did. And then, like I said to him, I'm not going to get rich off of, you know, something like that. You know, I, now, if it had been nominated for an Oscar, like on any Sunday, maybe I would have thought twice about, you know, getting some residuals out of it. But they, it, it came out, and people who saw it really liked it because it really captured the 70s, and it was all flat track. There was no road racing, no motocross, no any of that stuff in there. And... Uh, we knew Mark Marco was uh, uh, not destined to be on this earth very much longer, so we made a special point to go up to Michigan and do an interview with him to kind of get him on film. But uh, that movie, The Thrill is On, uh, was really taken by uh, by a lot of people in a positive sense that it was really unique in that it was all dirt trap stuff. And it showed you know, stuff uh, like Dusty Racetrack that we raced on. It shows Kenny Roberts as an amateur that, you know, he wasn't able to be on any Sunday, but he was in the Thrillers on Gary Scott and some other guys who were just, like I said, not at the right place at the right time when on any Sunday came out. But I, I and then now it's on a CD and uh, with uh, Netflix and some other things, you, you just go on the internet and punch in the Thrillers on it and you watch it for free. So it was, like I said, I was, I, it did a lot for me and I kept my name again out there in the public side, but it wasn't like I was able to, by half of you know Santa Barbara like Bruce Brown did with his money, but it 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 it, it was good. It was good. Yeah, that that that. I mean, it's 
that was uh like i said i don't know how dan ruitt got a copy of it but he had a copy of it and you know and then later on i was at springfield mile once and i seen dan mahoney was selling dvd copies of it and i was like oh a dvd now so yeah i got it on vhs i got it on dvd and and uh like you said it's it's available online you know but man that is uh you know that's a classic movie and and you know i tell you what i mean i wish we could talk to you more and more and more and maybe we might have to have you on again but i gotta say man uh if you if you ever write a book let me know because i'm ordering the first copy because i mean you have you know i I, people have said that and i thought about it and i said well now i have to wait until a lot of these people die you know so i can tell the truth about what really happened (laughs) and all this and that then they have died but now i i respect what they did uh when they were alive that i will not want to you know bring them down and humiliate their, their their the memory that people may have of them but yeah, there's some stuff that uh, we did that I'm sure, you know, uh, uh, a jealous husband or a, uh, a <laughs> mean, mean woman would want to, like, shoot us or kill us for some of the stuff that we did back in the day. And statute of limitations, I'm sure, has run out on some things. And others, you know, you just want to, I guess, keep to yourself or take to the grave with you. But the people that we did it with, you know, that I did alongside of or with, they, we, we know – Man, but it would make a good book, and especially if I could get pictures in it, you know, for the pictures worth a thousand words. Yeah, absolutely. I, I you know, we have uh, one one quick question before we move on to our last segment. And uh, obviously, because you're still involved with the sport, uh, you know, like you said, you're going to a race this weekend. Uh, so I'm pretty sure you keep up with the uh, current AFT uh, schedule and watch. I'm sure you watch yeah. some of the races. Um, right. You know, I mean, a lot of changes, obviously, you know, this, any sport, any, any, you know, racing in general, it, it's always evolving. But, you know, the sports in it is kind of, you know, turned the page and I guess started a new chapter. You know, uh, we got Super Twins teams now. You got production, uh, you know, uh, singles, you know, 450 singles uh, uh, on production motorcycles uh, or based off of production motorcycles. You know, uh, a lot of new, you know, Indians involved now. What what, what are some of the, the what's your take on, on, on racing and uh, at that level in today's world? What, what's your perspective? Well, I, I think in a little bit kind of comes from back in, in my day. And that was when if we could get on television, that was going to be a big thing. Like CBS might uh, film the Daytona 200 and you might get other coverage. But the way the flat track has approached the uh, flat tracking sponsorship and getting NBC and, uh, getting on television is going to bring in the money. I, I like to think, I mean, because I'm sure AFT is not doing it for free, and there has to be some sort of offsetting money and financial stuff to compensate these guys that have paid for the 53-foot trailer that brings their engines and their, you know, Harley Davidson's to the events. That there's got to be some sort of residual payback. That I think the money. Uh, even though the years have gone by, the purses haven't gotten that much bigger. You know, over the years, you would think that it would have grown with the time that has passed. So I'm thinking, you know, that they're on TV, and that's a good thing, and they're getting good sponsorships. But I, I, I think that uh, the the day when there were, you know, 170 guys trying to qualify uh, for a race and now having a, a team that you can buy your way into it by, you know, you having or a sponsor or a somebody having X amount of dollars that's going to put two bikes in, in the in the field and park their trailer in front of, you know, 
uh, cameras, TV cameras, to get some good coverage for the sponsors has has, has changed in in regards to that. You know, the the the, the privateer has a small or little chance of of making a name for himself. He doesn't if he never gets that opportunity where, you know, like I said, a local guy can come out of the woodwork and show his wares and do well and get people's attention. Where today, unless you're riding one of those other production classes at a lower level and you're able to, you know, uh, get someone's attention, you're never gonna get a chance other than that to get on one of the bigger bikes with better sponsorship. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, I, I would like to think that it's going to continue to grow and get better because uh, I, I think the guys need to be, you know, compensated for the risks that they take. Uh, I, I think too that you know television brings a lot, you know, of professionalism to the guys. I, I know a long time ago, you know, uh, we didn't have to wear a certain hat on the podium. We didn't have to, you know, uh, say the right thing. We were more or less ourselves. But I think today's, you know, social media kind of makes it. It makes it to the makes takes it to another level to where uh, it's just more and more. And I don't want to say that we were not professional at the time, but I think professionalism at the time was different. And I think, like like you said, things evolve and they're growing. And I just hope that it continues to to grow. And I know right now with the virus, the COVID thing, it's causing you know the promoters to back out of promoting the race because without the spectators and then buying a, a ticket or a hot dog or a program. They're not going to make the money that AFD is able to make off the TV, uh, you know, people that the promoters need the spectators in the stands. And until that comes back and and, uh, gets going again, it's going to be pretty hard for people to, you know, be a a promoter. I think in general, I hope, you know, for the best. Yeah, I mean... uh... Once again, well said. I wish we could. Uh, I wish we had about another five hours to talk because I could. I, I don't think I could well, ever get tired. Of... That's that guy right away. I'm. I'm. I'm open and available. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My phone keeps going. I'll, I'll oh man. Oh yeah, I thought we might have been a little bit on a time crunch, and I didn't want to, you know, uh, you know, like I said, I wanted to kind of respect your time, but if you want to keep yeah, going, yeah. man, yeah, you know, I'd be happy to keep going. Yeah, I think that eight o'clock thing I had going is like I've missed it, so I'm just gonna yeah, we'll, you can all right. Stuff out there, nice, so, nice. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's keep cool, going. man. It's it's yeah, like I said, it's a pleasure to keep talking to you. You know, and, and obviously, you know, uh, I guess now that we have a little bit more time, one of the things I want to talk to you about, I'll jump back to is uh, you know, like. Like we talked about, you had a lengthy career uh, beyond flat track. You talked a little bit about your road racing career, but you've uh, you went on to do some world uh, endurance racing. Uh, you raced, uh, I think, Speedway. <laughs> you even I seen pictures of you on like a grass tracker in England. <laughs> you you raced just yeah. about <laughs> all kind. I mean, first of all, how was riding a grass track? Well, uh, you know, I, I had ridden speedway bikes in Southern California, and I, I was thought to myself, well, it's got two wheels on it and a motor. I, I can ride it. And I remember uh, there was a guy by the name of Rick Woods, and he rode for this guy named Ed Schaefer that kind of had a, a motorcycle kind of a shop next to C&J Frames, and I hung out at C&J Frames pretty regularly because they were making my Northern Frames and making special frames for my Osa, Suzuki, and some other stuff. And they also made road racing chassis for Kawasaki and uh, I want to say Suzuki uh, when T&J was really in the building frames. And this guy, uh, 
Ed Schaefer asked me to go on a ride. He had like a 500 gallon or something, a titanium frame, and uh, they were going to run it. Ask. Oh, no, we ran it Irwindale. And on uh, a Thursday night, and I think it was Saturday night at uh, Ascot. And I'd ridden Ascot in the quarter mile, so I kind of knew the, the dirt and the corners and that sort of thing. But I never rode the speedway bike. So I went to uh, ride this uh, speedway bike for Ed Schaefer at uh, Irwindale. It was sort of a small eighth mile, or a, it was kind of a small thing. Anyways, uh, and, and, and the speedway, you don't get any practice. You just go to the line and take off. I mean, uh, people may practice, you know, in their backyard or practice at some track shop, but I, I, I never, I never let the clutch out on one of those things ever. And so I let the clutch out and I took off and I'd seen the guys wide and wide open around there, you know, pretty near wide open. They get up on the gas tank and put their handlebar in the hip and kind of slide around the corner. So I kind of thought, well, I can do this. So anyway, I went to the first turn and I went down the back straight away and this motorcycle I rode was like really fast and really good. And I got off in front. Uh, when I went to go boot the throttle to go into turn three, the throttle was stuck wide open. So I thought, well, no problem. I'll just ride it around here wide open, you know, and kind of get up on the gas tank. Well, I got around about two-thirds of the way around turn three and four, and the thing started to hook up, and my weight transferred to the back. And that motorcycle leaped into the air straight up and took off and crashed into the guardrail or the the, the plywood fence that they had for a railing and then it went up into the bleachers into like the first row of the bleachers and and he, ironically and, and sad to say it broke my sponsor's wife's arm and so his wife was up there and, and hit her and broke her arm then the bike fell back onto the dirt and scooped up and they had like a back then they had like a big old uh scoop for an air cleaner and it scooped up a bunch of dirt and, and it died until it killed it and so I was done that day. The next time I rode it a speedway bike was at Ascot and they put me on a, they, I don't know if you're familiar but they have like a handicap race where it's like the 10 yard line, the 20 yard line mm-hmm. the 30 yard line, I don't know if you've seen that well yep. in normal circumstances you know you race one week and then you get put back and then another week you get put back. Well on, in the first race, I beat everybody. So they put me on the 20-yard line. They, and then they, and I think I had a right like four times or five times to qualify for the main event. The guy with the most points, you know, the four guys with the most points got the right. And then they put me back on the 30-yard line. And I thought, well, shit. So I, I won. I beat everybody then. Then they put me on the 40-yard line, and uh, I beat everybody again. And uh, so for the main event, they put me on the 50-yard line. I think I managed to get second. And so they... So I made it sort of a, 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 not a name for myself, but they could see that I could ride a speedway bike. Well, when I got through riding the, the transatlantic races in March or April or whenever that was, they knew that I'd ridden a speedway bike. So this guy, Garden, who designed a 500 Garden, and you're from Germany or something, mm-hmm. they had a grass track where Ivan Majors was world champion, Bird Bridges there, the Collins brothers, there was a couple Collins guys that were world champions. And they gave me this, this garden, which is another fast bike. And I, I got out there on that grass track, and, and I beat those guys there, too. In fact, I did so well that Mr. Godden, the guy that designed his engine, offered me $500 a race to go race speedway races on in Germany every Wednesday night. Well, I'd already committed myself to going to Italy and to France and other places. And I just thought, 
traveling back and forth like that was a little bit going to be real, real hectic, you know, and and it cost me some money, you know, to to get back and forth. Even though they're going to give me start money, it, it just didn't seem like it was going to be advantageous to my wallet. So I I I, I didn't do that. But I, I had uh, I I could ride that, and I, I also was able to ride uh, this elf bike that at the time just looked like. You know, it looked like, I don't know what it looked like. It just looked like a monster with two wheels and a Honda engine stuck in there. Yeah. But I thought to myself, it's got two wheels and a motor. I can ride this thing. And little did I know when I first saw it, like, oh, my gosh, what is that? And little did I know two years later, I'd be riding it. Now, they compensated me very, very, very well with a lot of U.S. dollars to make it happen. But all I had to think to myself was these two giant wheels are like gyroscopes. And I'm going to try to get it from point A to point B, and then I'm going to turn it and lean it and kind of do this and that. And I figured out how to uh, to ride it, and we actually did pretty good. We uh, we, we it, it was kind of built by some Formula One race car guys, so they didn't have motorcyclists in mind. In a straight line, the thing was a rocket ship. I think in 1983, it went 185 miles an hour, which was about the fastest on a closed circuit at, at Paul Ricard. But when we leaned into the corner, it was like a, a wing uh, because they designed it to punch a hole in the air going straight. And when we leaned it over and we're dragging the fairing and the you know engine cases on the ground, the thing the way it was designed, fairing wise and aerodynamically wise, they wanted to lift off the ground and it, it, they wanted to move around. So we had, we didn't put wings on at the time, but we had to like start hanging our knees out more and start leaning off the bike a little bit more. So. I mean, being able to ride a speedway bike or this elf bike was just, you know, uh, some new concept ideas that really uh, were innovative at the time. In fact, they sold the banana swinging arm uh, uh, to Honda, where you take the, the the wheel off with leaving the sprocket and rotor on the on the rear swinging mm-hmm. arm, and just take the wheel off with one nut like a car. That yeah. that was something they sold to Honda, I think, for around a hundred million dollars, the patent on that, but. Yeah, I, I rode speedway bikes. I rode motocross, uh, you know, the Trans Am uh, motocross on the B50 BSA against Roger DeCoster and uh, Joel Robert and Jeff Smith and the American guys with Weiner. They pretty good. I think I maybe my, – my big thing was not to get lapped. I mean, I'd finish maybe fifth or sixth sometimes or maybe eighth or ninth. Uh, but uh, I, I rode – I rode whatever whoever would pay me to ride. I I, I was sort of a whore to money. I I, I drove whatever they pay me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you obviously rode. I mean, you know, the the list of guys you rode with. I mean, starting from like you know, I I don't know who the earliest guys you may have rode with at Ascot. Maybe Sammy Tanner. Maybe you just missed the uh, you know the Al Gunner days. I'm not quite sure if your career yeah. crossed or whatnot but you know and then you had teammates like uh all the way to like john kaczynski was your teammate eddie lawson uh you know i mean your career and, and the motorcycles you rode from you know uh some iconic motorcycles like that elf motorcycle yeah. i mean that's an iconic motorcycle uh you rode the ronwood nortons i mean you talk about your bsas you rode tz 750s i mean the list of motorcycles you rode has to be a mile long and uh I don't think there's probably many people that could, you know, lay claim yeah. to uh, that list I, of motorcycles. I think, you know, uh, having an opportunity to ride uh, with somebody just starting out, like, for example, Eddie Lawson, uh, they hired me specifically to help Eddie ride the Kawasaki. They said this bike is good, but Eddie's not riding it. So if you 
if you get on the bike, David, and you you do a minute twenty eight, then he'll he'll be more obliged to try to go faster. So my job was to like put the fire under his butt and get him to go to to go because I guess they saw potential in him, which obviously went on to be world champion numerous times. But I I uh, at the time when I was riding the Kawasaki with Eddie Lawson, the Freddie Spencer had come on the scene on the Honda, and he had Michelin tires, and we had Dunlop tires. And I, with the background that I had with CNJ frames, I made suggestions to try to get the... And, and I, I knew a lot about geometry, just like I said, from CNJ frames. So I got the guy at Kawasaki to change the pivot point angle on the swinging arm or tilt the engine forward, or because I'd ridden Yashimura motorcycles that I knew that we needed better brakes uh, that... Uh, so I had him build different brakes uh, for me. I had him change the motor location. I had him change the car. I knew, and I done my motorcycles on a dyno uh, in Los Angeles. So I knew how length of carburetor stacks affected the carburetion or the, the way the bike would pull off the corner or how the collectors come together in the exhaust system to where it's going to get a little bottom end or top end. And we were losing a little bit to the Hondas off the corner. So I was trying to get, that Kawasaki to come off the corner better. So we tried a bunch of stuff. And and at the end, at the end of the day, at, and the only thing I kind of took from all of that season that he lost was at the end of the year, he sit in his lawn chair drinking Pepsi Cola and, you know, eating hamburgers and french fries while I was eating good food. He was eating junk food. But he said at the end, make my bike like David's. And that was wow. uh, kind of a compliment to me and Kaczynski you know you brought up his name when we he came on the scene when I was doing the endurance racing for a, a company called Cycle Tech uh, that also rewarded me financially to, to be part of that group John Kaczynski even when he was 15 or 60 years old he had his mind set on being world champion and he hadn't even written other than endurance races written anything but I could see in him his dedication and his commitment i said you know uh to, to kaczynski i said you know to be at the level of kenny roberts like you want to be you have to make sacrifices in your life you're going to have to give up this and this and you're going to have to train and you're going to have to your whole life is going to have to be motorcycles and he said man david that's what i want i want to be world champion i said well you you know you can you can ride these bikes you know uh and 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 make a name for yourself but you got to make this commitment and so my job again with Kaczynski he was I got the motorcycle set up and he and because uh, we had to, we rode the same bike and the endurance thing he come in and says it's wobbling here and turn five or something or he's doing this and turn six so I, I I was about a second slower than him so I wasn't feeling the exact same thing he was feeling but I knew what he was describing and I could go to these corners and make some changes to the suspension or to the uh, you know spring rate or the compression rebound because there was a lot of adjustment that was coming into the industry at that time that mm-hmm. I was able to make some changes. And then he'd come in and he says, David, it's still wiggling and wobbling. I said, yeah, but now you're going two seconds a lot faster than you did the last time. He, he could find the edge of the envelope, so to speak, really easy. And all I had to do is keep put that edge of the envelope further away and they would get up to it. Same thing with Eddie Lawson and uh, John Kaczynski. They, they were able to do that, and I, 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 you know, I knew, you know, what what I had to do. I mean, I, I, I think sometimes I, I 
I, I could have done better, but I guess maybe, you know, looking back, I mean, it's easy in hindsight, you know, it's 2020 to see, gosh, if I'd have stuffed them here, if I'd have done this, you know. I, yeah. Even though I had a reputation for crashing, and all my accidents and wrecks and leaving the, the facility, going out of the fence, over the fence, out of the ballpark, landing in the parking lot with the parked cars, <laughs> I never took other riders with me. When I fell down, it was by myself. I was, and I always thought too. And I've heard somebody—I I can't think of what its name is—offhand was the AFP guy says, "You don't know how fast you go till you fall down." Well, I said that 50 years ago. But uh, <laughs> when I fell down, it was by myself. And and uh, even on in the movie on any Sunday, I think Bruce Brown uh, refers to me as falling down 15 times and never got hurt. Well, that's true. But I never, and I never got reprimanded. I did get reprimanded for rough riding a little bit, but. I never, you know, wiped out anybody. Never took somebody to the hospital. Never hurt anybody. You know, uh, I would just leave like black numbers, uh, black tire marks on the side of their number plates, <laughs> or leave black, you know, rubber on the side of their legs where I was trying to get by them. But uh, I think to myself, maybe I didn't try, you know, as, as hard as I could have. Maybe, you know, looking back. But you know, you mentioned those names of people who I had the pleasure of riding with. You know, another guy who was really sharp and still alive, and I still, you know, admire the guy, Dick Mann. I mean, this guy went from 500 single cylinder, uh, no brakes, to 650s, and 650s with no brakes. And he went to 750 bikes with brakes. Then he went from ride metal matchless 500 on road races to riding the dang Honda inline four. And, and <laughs> you know, when in, I mean, when in Daytona, guys, right? Yeah. 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 And so yeah. there's a guy who made the transition through all those eras and was successful. And I kind of, you know, think to myself, you know, if he can do it, well, so can I. So I, I, I tried. I tried. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> you've done a great job trying. You know, you talk about, you know, you, you mentioned that quote from any Sunday. And, uh, you know, I was going to mention that because, you know, another, you know, just a iconic thing of the sport is that quote i mean uh you know you when you think of famous quotes whether it's woodrow wilson or whoever or gandhi or i don't know bob marley or yeah, whoever yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. all these guys man in the motorcycling world i mean i think the quote that tops them all is your quote you know you never know how fast you, you can go until you fall off yeah, and yeah. uh man. i tried yeah, i tried <laughs> but, you know riding the bsa too wasn't the fastest thing on the on the racetrack so sometimes i was I was trying, but I didn't know any different, you know. And like I said, when I fell down, it was by myself trying to go faster. In fact, the I, I, same thing would happen to me on my road race bike. I was always trying to push it a little more, a little bit more. And so, you know, and with road race bikes, it's such a fine line between uh, success and failure that, you know, you got to find that ragged edge and you got to be right on there to be successful. Same thing with their track, you know. I think the guys that, you know, they make it look easy, like Jared Mead makes it look easy, but. Any slip, like Jeffrey Carver, just a slight little bobble, you leave the front end, you go down, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I, I, you know, it, that you don't know, and I, I'm a firm believer, you don't know until you push the, the outer limits, I guess, so to speak. No, absolutely right. Can't Couldn't agree with you anymore. Now, out of all those motorcycles you talk about, you know, and the different types of racing, uh, if you can go back and ride one motorcycle at one place again, what what would that motorcycle be? It, 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 people have asked me that numerous times, and I have to admit, even though it wasn't the fastest, uh, 
or the sharpest tool in the shed, the Norton motorcycle. It handled because it was specially built for me. I, I remember coming up with uh, the dimensions for the seat's going to be, how big the gas tank's going to be, where my feet are going to sit on the footrest. It was so special for me that it was so easy to ride. And basically, it was a Triumph on the inside. It had the Triumph cams. It had Triumph pistons, compression ratio, and boring stroke. In fact, uh, after Gene Romero you know, developed his Triumph to win the number one plate, Nick Delajanis, the mechanic, took all of that stuff and uh, kind of implemented it into the Norton. And at the same time, Juan Woods was doing the same thing. Now, he went a step further and kind of created his own design of a frame, his own kind of unique color, and his own kind of concept. But it was basically a triumph on the inside. And both his Nortons and the Nortons that I rode all made around 70, 72 horsepower. But we were competing against a Harley that had like uh, 79 or 80 it was the most fun easiest bike to ride and the the road racer i had it was a john player norton and it was ice elastic and mounted the engine rather was rubber mounted and it was a pleasure it was fun to ride uh in the rain at the match races i could always hold my own against tz 750s and the 750 suzuki's even though i was on a a 750 norton it's just the power to weight ratio worked pretty good it, it handled it uh but the Norton motorcycle was one of my favorites. The one I did not like, and I never could adapt myself, the ride was a damn Harley with those two carburetors on the side. Uh, I, I just wasn't bow-legged enough to, when I'd like to go around the carburetors and the air cleaners, and the gas wow. tanks were wearing in the back. I, I just could not. I, I, even though I, 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 I rode one, and I had some success at, at the Indian Mile, excuse me, at the um, uh, Sacramento Mile, uh, but uh, that was when I just I didn't like riding that. Yeah, you know, and and I heard you mention Indy real quick, and I want to talk about that because that's a race that's coming back on the schedule, uh, and, and I think it's pretty cool that you know, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of people know there is going to be no more racing at Indy. It's an iconic racetrack uh, for many reasons, and then it was like total bummer to hear about it going away, and I'm so pumped to see it back on the schedule. But that was actually uh, a race you won. At one point in time, right. you won the you That's won right. the Indy Mile, correct? Yeah, I won three nationals that year, uh, my rookie year. The only race I didn't win that kept me from doing the Grand Slam was a short track race, and I kind of got close at the Astrodome, which is another story I'll tell you in a second. But at the Indy Mile, Dick Mann, uh, I think the weekend before, we raced Sedalia, Missouri on a mile, and Jim Rice was riding the BSA Triple and ran into Dick Mann left foot. You know, he had a steel shoe on it. Uh, Jim Rice hit him so hard, bumped him so hard with his indicators, broke his left foot. Well, my motorcycle broke a primary chain or something, and I was trying to patch the motor up uh, at uh, Indy, and Dick Mann came over and said, hey, you want to ride my motorcycle? And I thought, well, heck, you know, he's got one that runs. I'll, I'll ride his. So I put my gas tank on his motorcycle, and uh, uh, he, he we made a deal. I was going to split half the money with him, whatever I wanted. He was going to get half. And uh, so I went out on the and, – and, and, and Gene Romero and Chuck Parker, we always used to hang out at this uh, motorcycle shop in Illinois. And Dick Mann was always kind of – we were always seeing, you know, how he wasn't doing things right, according to Gene and Chuck uh, like. We build his motorcycles, and so 
And he said, when I was going to ride Big Man's motorcycle, they said, oh, man, it's not going to run. It's, it'll quit on you. Something will happen. And you, you, you better off not riding it. Well, they probably didn't want me to ride it because maybe I'd win and beat them. <laughs> so I, I got on it, and I rode it. And I, I went in the pack and I said, well, sure, I'll dazzle this old guy. So I held it wide open around the Indy Mile. And he came in and started yelling at me. And he goes, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, well, I'm riding some of a bitch wide open, man. I got her pants. And he goes, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. And had I not been riding his motorcycle, these two little these points that he, he, he made me well aware of have helped me in my career, whether it was motocross, road racing, anything. He told me, David, don't do that. First off, the BSA, because they had a short fuse, he says, you got to back off the gas a little bit so the primary chain will, the slack will loosen up and the bottom will slap down into the oil and get oil on it. And I thought, well, you know, you use put more oil in it. You know, I shouldn't have to back off the gas. <laughs> then he told me, don't, because I was backing it in on the mile. He said, no, you want to drive it in with both wheels in line. And I thought, well, oh, you know, that made, it sort of made sense because now I was, because he said, you cannot go in and have the back end hanging out and still go forward. You're sliding sideways. You want to go forward. And so I thought, okay. So I um, I did that, and I won the race uh, going away on his bike. But in the interim, about, oh, I guess maybe halfway, and I think it was a 30-lap race. I, we, it wasn't like a 16-lap race or 20. It was like, we should do 30 miles and 50 miles, and I think that one happened to be a 30-mile. Anyways, I had my gas tank on the bike, and about halfway through the race, the bike started to sputter and quit. And I thought, oh, man, dick, man, you give me a piece of shit motorcycle. God damn it, I'm, I'm winning the race, and now your bike is letting me down. So I, I do everything that, you know, you, you, as a racer, you normally do. I, I look to make sure the throttle cables were still hooked into the throttle, you know, and then the carburetors. I checked the kill button. I made sure the wires were not, you know, dangling loose or the kill button wasn't on. And I looked down at the ground, and now they're starting to gain on me, catch me. They're almost starting to, I'm almost willing to stop almost on the back straightaway. And I looked down, and my petcocks on my gas tank, turned off they were like the bsa pull and turn kind of pet cops that you don't even mm -hmm. use anymore yeah they, had, I they were made out of cork yeah mm -hmm. anyways the pet cops vibrated shut so i pulled the pet cops back open and the bike took off again and started running again and so i i i won the race uh you know for not only easily but it was it was a, a a good one to win plus it was the indie mile you know all the formula or the IndyCar guys uh, came out to watch the races and to see us go around the racetrack, uh, you know, on, on motorcycle like that was unique to them. And, and, and back then too, the Indy mile, unlike it is today, it actually got a cushion or had a cushion because you could run at nighttime. And I was one of those kind of guys that, you know, high, white and handsome kind of guy in the sense that I would go on the outside or an expression I used to use was, I ride my motorcycle where other races are afraid to look. You know, I go right to the edge. That's awesome. And so I, I, yeah, so I would stick the back end in the cushion and kind of keep the wheels in line and just get my momentum up. In fact, I another race I was I thought I had a chance of winning uh, with Dave uh, Dave on his Harley. He and I on my Norton were racing for the lead, and normally I could keep up with him because it was down on horsepower. 
was uh, I pass him in the corner and graph him down the straightaway. Pass him in the corner, graph him down the straightaway. Well, Springsteen and Corky Keenan were about maybe 50 yards, about 20 yards behind us, but couldn't catch us. Our, our speed together, Dave Sell and ours, was fast enough where we were going to stay together. Well, his bike blew up, and I was by myself, and I didn't have anybody to draft, and my corner speed wasn't uh, capable enough, to, and straightaway speed capable enough to keeping up with the guys. And so I ended up going, I think I ended up fourth or fifth in that race. But yeah, the Indy Mile was one of those kind of tracks that, like Terre Haute, it was very unique in that, just like Ascot. The dirt was such that it made it unique. Uh, and at nighttime at a mile, it was it was it was fantastic, and it still is. I mean, it's still a race to watch. I mean, it's a good spectator race, and we were always there like the other day during the fair. You know, mm-hmm. I could see down the straightaway. You know, uh, actually, I'd look up and I'd see the Ferris wheel. You know, uh, in the background. When I was racing, I used to I used to look around. I see people, you know, barbecue, and I see people drinking. I, I I wave at people. I see girls lift up their top and show me their breasts. I mean, I'd like, all right, you know. <laughs> Some of the, you know, like I said, stuff we saw and did back in the day was, was different than today. But yeah, I, I when I race, I mean, I'm, I'm I know what I'm doing, but I'm I'm also taking in the sights. <laughs> that that's great man that is so good uh you know it's something that you know you you'd never expect to hear from somebody <laughs> that, that that is gold man that is absolute gold you know and, and you talk about you know the grand slam you came really close i'll tell you uh, i i know you don't remember this but i i remember it i was a little kid and i used to always buy pictures off of you know uh, i've yeah, I've been infatuated with the sport my whole life. So I'd always buy pictures off of photographers. And I got this picture, I believe, off of Dan Mahoney. And I yeah. came up to you and I had you sign it. And uh, you, you just signed your name with a regular ballpoint pen. And you're like, hey, let me tell you a little bit of something about this picture. You're like, uh, and you won it. You're carrying the checkered flag. And I think you're, you know, rookie expert. I believe it was from the Astrodome, but I guess it wasn't a national uh, because you say it was the. Uh, you know, that was the only thing stopping you from get, getting the grand slam. But you're like, you see you see Keith Mashburn walking in the background of the picture? I'm like, yeah. You're like, he was leading that thing, and his chain broke or fell off, and I ended yeah, up winning it. Was it. Am- it was an amateur national. Yeah. Oh, okay. As a, novice, as, a, as a novice, he beat me on the two giddy on the half mile, but on the on a little track like that, I, I obviously was closer. I was in the second. But, yeah, he was leading the thing on his Yamaha twin rigid uh road rage Stop. engine thing uh and the chain came off it and i ended up winning that one yeah but it was it was a national but it was an amateur it was uh, an amateur national ah oh, yeah, okay yeah, yeah. okay yeah man and, so and close speak, and speak and speaking of pictures and mahoney would walk around at, at the races and he'd have an armful under his arm and he'd say uh yeah here's these pictures for sale uh and i'd look through you know see five or six or four or five and and uh he says, ah, they're, they're like $2 a piece. And I said, well, I'm not paying $2 for those pictures because, look, there's eight guys in this picture. You're going to sell this picture eight times to these guys. And I said, I'll give you 50 cents for it. <laughs> I, I'd get like five or six pictures for $2. I, I was, you know, I thought, well, it's a group shot. You're going to sell this to everyone in this group. I said, and you're going to try to get it all out of me. And I said, no, I won't do that. So I, I have pictures. Of, I got, uh, gosh, tons of pictures because I got them at the end of the night when he didn't sell any. 
I'd buy like five or six for a dollar or something, you know, it was like, because you couldn't eat them, you know, you <laughs> needed the money. And, you know, back then, like I said, gasoline being 26 cents a gallon, you could go from here to Colorado on a dollar with the gas. Almost. <laughs> anyway, it's a, uh, a true yeah, businessman. <laughs> you you were a true businessman, oh, yeah. man, from, from yeah. the beginning. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Uh, that's we, well, that's being, no. being frugal, I guess. We used to stay, uh, you know, we'd stay in Illinois. We'd do, like I said, Granite City or St. Louis on Tuesday and Hinsdale or Chicago on Wednesday. Friday, we might go to Pecatonica. Well, we had a little system or a uh, 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 not a system, I guess, a, 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 a way that we'd go to these races. And we knew which Holiday Inn to stay at that had a big trees that we could sleep in our vans in the shade and then get up in the morning and facing the hotel room, we'd see somebody leave the motel room and leave the door open. Then we'd go in there and use their shower. But we knew which hotels had like a, uh, a, uh, a pool room that had a shower in it. And we knew, you know, that, once, you know, we were getting up in the morning in the shower, we'd go into the pool room and use the shower at certain places. Uh, so, I mean, it, you know, we were, we were we were having fun. You know, kids, uh, uh, we, we said hotels in some places at the Nationals, but those little weekly things, we would just sleep in our trucks, you know, with our, our bunks. Our, our, we had bunks in our vans that, you know, everyone yeah. carried a gun just in case, you know. Uh, that reminds me of another time. Gene Romero and Chuck Palmer, we were driving across uh, Kansas or something. This flat for like 200 miles, and we were alongside the railroad tracks. And there was a train with about, I don't know, 50 boxcars or something behind it. Well, Gene and Chuck started shooting at the train, these boxcars, and you could see the bullets going king and, and knocking the rust loose off the boxcars. And that was about the time that, you know, CB radios were real popular. And we're, we're talking on CB radio, and they're boom, boom, shooting guns out their doors, you know, out the windows at the train for the train conductor. Anyway, so we, we're going down the road, and all of a sudden we look in the rearview mirror, and there's like eight police cars with their lights flashing and, 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 and the sirens going way, way behind us. But we can faintly, faintly hear the sirens. And so we were talking on CB radios going, Man, there must be something in front of us. There must be a big, bad wreck or something in front of us. And so we're driving. You know, we saw it slow down about 70 miles an hour. But then all of a sudden, all these cars, cop cars, get alongside of us, block us in, and stop us on the side of the freeway. And they, because uh, they, they didn't catch us shooting the guns at the train, all they could do was give us a ticket for, I think they gave us a ticket for speeding or something. But they, and they told us not to shoot at the trains anymore. Uh, but you know, <laughs> stuff like that. We we we'd have got arrested for sure if it had been you know another time. But uh, oh yeah, if that happened today, you know, yeah, you'd be you'd oh, be yeah. locked up, you know, man. You'd be locked yeah, up. Yeah, like Yeah, like like I said, traveling around. You know, like we did all these races, kind of staying at you know underneath trees at certain places because we knew it was, you know, uh, a good thing. We also, you know, I think traveling around, uh, we we would get bored of just driving. We'd stop at our fruit stand and buy, you know, cases of tomatoes and oranges and stuff, and we would throw them, we'd throw them up in the air and time it to where it hit the windshield of the van behind us. And, uh, and, and we'd be flattering fruit. People would call the police. We'd get in trouble with the police because we're littering on the highway. They tell us we couldn't do that. And we were telling us it's biodegradable, you know. And then as a joke, 
we would uh, pass each other with our vans, and we would carry a package of, you know what tear-offs are? You know? Yeah. On the face shields? So yeah. when we got in front of... We got in front of another van. I'd stick, I'd take this tear off, and I'd roll my window down. And I put my hand up in the air, and I'd let this tear off flap in the breeze for a, a second or two, and then let go of it. Like I'm in the lead now, and I can tear off. <laughs> we would do you know, kind of crazy stuff just to you know get past the time down the road. But uh, it was it was another time of an era. I don't know if the, you know that's another thing too. You know, one of the BSA, one of the Triumph, one of the Yamaha guy, but we all traveled together. You know, it was the camaraderie that we had was, you know, we're still friends today. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm sure there's some of that that goes on today, maybe uh, on, a, on a smaller scale. But, you know, it was no big deal to see, you know, four or five vans going down the highway, you know, all of us together talking on the CB radio, you know, stopping the truck stop, you know, stopping at houses of ill repute, you know, that we knew where they were. Off the yeah. interstate, it was funny. Yeah, uh, yeah know, I kind of. There, there's one in every town. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, it's kind of funny. You know, how you say, you know, uh, racing has evolved, and you know, like you talk about, you know, when I was growing up, uh, the ultimate race vehicle to have was a, a van with a bunk in it. You know, and you were set. Uh, and now yeah. today's world yeah. of traveling around. You don't need the bed because you're driving to a, a hotel and you're in town a couple of days before, and you don't you don't need to sleep unless you you know your 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 buddy wants to take a a, a little snooze uh you know a siesta on the on the yeah. way to the races right yeah it's just different yeah. times in in how things evolve and change but yeah the, those stories are great I guess you know like you talked about a little earlier I guess it was um it was like a set it was I guess you can say a I don't know, traveling circus or fraternity. Uh, things were a little yeah. bit different in those days, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So well, we could, our vans uh, back in the day, we had saddle tanks. Uh, Neil Keen, I remember, put, he put a Volkswagen tank underneath his uh, van and just had the spout sitting on the side next to the rear tire. And he would fill it up like that. Well, we, we actually had saddle tanks that fit underneath the chassis of our vans. To where I think my van held like 75 gallons Holy of shit. gas, and so we could make it. And, we, and this is the way we always did it: we would drive nonstop. You know, like you said, our, our my, my mechanic would go with me, or somebody travel with me would help drive. We could drive from San Diego, California, to Daytona Beach, Florida, in 39 hours, and stop twice for gas. I stopped in El Paso, Texas, and Beaumont, Texas, and that would be enough gas to get me from. San Diego to uh, to Daytona, and wow. if we had to go from San Diego to uh, Cumberland, Maryland, it took us about forty about forty four hours uh, to get there. Yeah, we, wow. we we drove we, we do that. I mean, it was just the way we did it. I mean, now I think I'll, I drive five or six hours, pull over, get something to eat, you know, maybe get a <laughs> hotel, you know, and then go the next six hours the next day. Where before we would do it all. In one go. You so know. you cut you kind of evolved into modern times too, is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember one time we were driving somewhere in uh, in Arizona or something. I had an alternator go out, and I remember driving about 500 miles with a goddamn flashlight uh, shooting over the, the 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 steering wheel onto the line so I could see where I was going. And people, <laughs> I could hear the people on the CB radio going. Look out, there's a four-wheeler on the side where the damn lights are turned off. 
<laughs> Poor we, we didn't know. We, you know, until the batteries went dead in the flashlight, I was good to go. I, you know, I was, I was going. Uh, I, remember one, I remember one time the fuel pump went out on my van, and so I took the, you know, in the old vans they had like a doghouse, a, a doghouse yeah. cover over the uh-huh. engine. So I took the doghouse cover off, and I, I knew it was a fuel pump. I don't know why, how I figured it out, but it was a fuel pump. That I sat in the passenger seat with a five-gallon can in my lap, with my left foot over the uh, carburetor and the engine, trying to work the gas accelerator, and I was holding with my right hand and my right knee five-gallon can with, and I put a little hose clamp onto a little uh, eighth-inch gas line tube, and I had gas going into the uh, carburetor out of this gas can. <laughs> <laughs> and I was I was driving it down the side of the shoulder of the freeway, trying to get to a town, you know, uh, to, so I could work on it the next day or get a fuel pump at the auto parts store. But I, you know, we I guess in the days we were more innovative. You know, something happened, you know, you fixed it. We worked on our trucks and we we kept on driving. I mean, it was just you just think of those things that, that I did, you know, to get to the races. Never missed a race in my life. I take it back. In all the years of racing. I missed one race. I was in Australia, and I was—I heard the super bikes take off, and I was in the restroom, and I thought, "Damn, those sounds like the bikes I'm riding." And I ran out there, and I said, "Why didn't they wait for me?" Anyway, they, they didn't wait for me. But I've never missed a race. I've—I've I've made every one of my races, uh, you know, whether yeah. you're driving or hook or foot. Somehow you—you you get there. You get there. And I hear people saying, "Oh, I can't get to the races." Well, if you want to race bad enough, you'll find a way. You know, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, th- those are some great. Like I said, man, you really need to write a book one day. I hope you do, because I mean, I know that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the stories that you have. And, you know, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk and share, share, you know, some of your experiences with experiences with us. It's been great. And um, we we got one more segment of the show it's gonna go by really quick it's called the high or low line it's where we just kind of ask you some uh some random questions and you it's like a this or that you just hey well you know pick your answer and you know maybe if you want to explain it that's great if not no big deal uh, but uh so for our high or low line, you know I'm gonna mix in Corey has a couple questions here one of uh Corey's questions here uh that he has for you on the higher low line is uh, if you could make the same amount of money, would you rather flat track or road race? Road race because it's way cleaner. <laughs> wow. All right. All right. Now, here, here's my one of my questions K70s or DT2 tires? <laughs> well, K70s I associate with, uh, we always had to use a little blue grooves. And the other tire, you could run in a cushion. So I'm a cushion guy. I'm not for going around putting around the pole on a little blue groove. So it'd be the the, the later tire. All right. The DT2, you said? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, the modern, more good year. I guess today yeah. they would be evolved yeah. into the Dunlop. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, Corey had one for you. And maybe you kind of answered this a little earlier, but, you know, you might be a different answer. Uh, factory BSA? Or factory Norton? It'd definitely be the uh, the factory Norton. And that would be... Uh, because it, that was because it was like, you know, 
special built. And the guy that worked on it, Mick Donald who just died last week, he, I, I, I never had a mechanic. By the way, I had two mechanics, so it was Kanemoto and Mick Donald They would stay up all night long and do whatever it took. I mean, literally, whatever it took to get that bike to perform at its best. And they they didn't think twice about going home and eating dinner or, or whatever. They, they, they made sacrifices like I did to ride them. They made sacrifices uh, in their own way to build them. And the Norton was one of those kind of bikes uh, that was special built. And they did he, – he, 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 if they were easy, if he even thought there was something in the slightest, something maybe, he wouldn't think twice to pull that engine out and take it apart to the crankshaft and look at something and then put it back together again. Yeah. I mean, so the Norton was, was a, one of a, a special kind of motorcycle, so I'd go with the Norton. Probably yeah, special in more than one way, it sounds like, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, we we know you're a cushion guy, so, and there's, uh, it, it's, you know, for... You travel around the country, you come across different racing surfaces, and there's different types of cushions. You mentioned Ascot is like a dirt clay cushion, and you know we know uh, places like Louisville where where pea gravel or limestone. So yeah, when it comes to yeah. cushions, are you a dirt cushion or are you a pea gravel cushion guy? Dirt cushion and pea gravel things, I never could get hooked up. Uh, like Louisville, and uh, I think it was at Toledo, Ohio, we raced at the Harley's. The firing impulse on the engines were different and they hooked up better than the inline twins that I rode. And I, I just never could, uh, even though I did okay at Louisville and, and I'd make the main event at some of those other peak gravel things. I just couldn't. And, and another one was uh, Roosevelt Speedway. I just couldn't, couldn't ever, I couldn't ever see myself getting to the front. I could always run mid pack, but I, 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 those peak gravel things, I mean, I ride them now and they're okay, but uh, they were they were like too skittery. You know, and there are people who are go really good on them. Steve Moorhead was one of the kind of guys that could do really well on a skittery track. Uh, Dave Sell was another one on a Harley could do good on a Springsteen. Uh, but you know, yeah, I, I I'm a dirt cushion guy, like Terra Haute. Yeah, or right. Mile, right or on. Ascot. Right on. Uh, hey, you know, you talked about Roosevelt, and I, you know, I gotta ask. I mean, you just sparked a memory in my mind. Uh, you know, was that that was that that rubber based racetrack? That yeah. Roosevelt. Yeah. What was that yeah. like? I mean, I mean, for those of you, I, I mean, I'm talking to the listeners now that may not be aware. Roosevelt was a racetrack. I believe it was in New York, and uh, yeah. it was a rubber. It was. A, the track was rubber. I mean, well, nobody better to explain it than a guy who wrote it. Tell us about Roosevelt real quick. It, it, yeah, it was sort of like brown AstroTurf, except the AstroTurf was very, very short, and they had it glued together. It never never came apart, but it was uh, – and it had dirt on top of it. So when you uh, were riding through the event and towards a few laps at the end of the main event, you could see the rubber. Uh, sections where they were, you know, glued together, but it, it was like dirt, you know, it was like kind of concrete, you know, kind of, ha- you know, handmade in the sense that it was rubber, something, and then they put dirt on top of it, you know, it's like putting dirt on top of concrete. Okay, well, once you get past the dirt, you're on the concrete. Well, it was the same thing uh, uh, with the rubber. Once you got past the dirt, you were on the rubber, and the rubber was actually fairly consistent uh, in that. It didn't get any less or more traction uh, further out or inside that you were on the track. It was it was actually fairly fairly good. I mean, uh, 
I, I, my, my claim to fame at that whole deal was I fell down twice in the main <laughs> event and never got lapped. I picked wow. that thing up and got. I kept the motor, kept the motor running, and and got jumped back on it again. It was one of, another one of those where I was kind of, you don't know how fast you can go till you fell down. Well, I was falling down. I still wasn't very very fast, other than getting my ass off the ground. But I remember falling down two times and never getting lapped. Wow, I thought that was pretty cool. But that's, that's crazy. Second, so, yeah, the Roosevelt thing was in New. I want to say New York, and it had to. A whole shitload of spectators. It was, but it didn't. It didn't. Uh, didn't go well. I guess I don't know why uh, they never had it again. Uh, in politics, uh, but yeah, the rubber thing was uh, unique and different. Is like you know, like astroturf, sort of with short hair. You know, short, short, short blades of grass. Uh, yeah, well, I always wondered about that. You know, I was like, man, that's crazy. I can't, cause you know, you you know, you you race on uh, different surfaces and you can kind of relate things. But you know, you race on concrete, you race on this, you race yeah. on that, and it's like, man, you know, what's rubber? Are you you know, you, you race on ice? It's like okay, but like rubber. I mean, what's that like? So, thanks for taking the time to answer that question. And you know, um, I hate to keep bringing up stuff, but you keep sparking, you know, little things in my mind. And you talked about how you crashed twice there. And, you know, you crashed so much during your career. Uh, I've never really seen or heard about you getting seriously hurt. I mean, were you ever put out due to injury? Uh, one, one time, and I, I, was, I just got a Honda contract uh, for the following year. And I was at the Superbikers uh, in Carlsbad, California. And uh, I had put this fork brace on uh, this bike I was riding. Uh, and when you know it, at the top of the hill, the fastest part of the racetrack uh, at Carlsbad, I was probably going maybe 90 or 100 miles an hour. I got in a tank slapper. And when you know it, in, 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 this, in this whole motocross abandoned drag strip and kind of rural area, there was a dump truck load of dirt on the top of this hill and when I got in this tank slapper, I knew I was kind of, you know, in trouble. My face was looking at my front number plate. My elbows were over the, the handlebars, and my hands were down by the front axle. And I was I was going over the handlebars, but I was still wobbling left and right. So I knew I was in trouble. So I, I raised myself up. And as I raised myself up, I looked in front of me, and there was this mound of dirt. And I hit this dirt and just came to immediate stop. And I had, I think, red gloves on and uh uh, and it was it was hot and it was sweat and it was practice and it was just after that uh, Rick Morrow guy had gotten chopped up with a helicopter doing some stunt work in a movie. Uh, I think it was a long time ago, so the helicopter wasn't there. But uh, I, I say that because I had to go in the ambulance to the hospital. But anyways, when I was laying on the ground, I went to get up because I always get up off the ground. I went to get up and my left leg kept falling back down on the ground. And it was, I, I, I went to pick it up with my hands above my knee, and it was like a noodle. It just kept limping over, kept falling down. And I thought, well, shit, that's not right. So they, they, they came over, took my helmet off, on a, uh, and my gloves had sweat on them, and I could feel something running out of my ear. And I touched my ear with my gloves, and my gloves looked like there was blood in my gloves. And I thought, Oh man, this is bad. When you're bleeding out of your ears, this is bad. I said, but this is this is not good. So they came in the uh, in the, but it was a it was blood from my nose. I I hit my nose and I didn't break it, but it was, I had a bloody nose and blood was running down my face and dripping off my ear. And I thought it was coming out of my ear. And uh, so they they carted me off to the hospital, and 
I broke my my femur in six places. I broke my hip, and I broke the wing off my uh, uh, and the wing and the hip. There's two parts of my hip I broke. The femur. Then I broke the ball off of the, uh, my femur. But my and I'm not giving this away. My legal name is Joe. So and I go by David, even though it's my middle name. So when I was admitted to the hospital, I was Joe Aldana, and I, and so. And I knew I had a con, and I knew, gosh, I was in bad shape. They put a a, raw, a plate and some screws and all kinds of stuff, and I was in traction for 30 days. And I knew if the word got out that I was hurt, I I, I was going to lose my ride with Honda. So I didn't tell anybody. I didn't let it. The cycle news would call up, and, and I, I didn't say nothing. The road racing world would call. I didn't say nothing. A motorcycle weekly call. I didn't say nothing. I didn't want anybody to know that I I got I pretty banged up. Well, that was uh, October, November, and 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 Daytona was coming up in March. So I was laid up in the hospital for thirty days, and they were giving me Demerol shots every four hours. I was on drugs. And I was on all kinds of stuff to try to keep me, you know, uh, from yelling and screaming because of the the traction they had me in. On the thirtieth day. They let me out, and on the 32nd or 33rd day, I started going to the gym. I started working out, uh, and it hurt like hell, but I knew they had a plate in there. And I had uh, aluminum, uh, excuse me, titanium, and some other shit in my other parts of my body later on in my career, So, or before then when I rode the Honda. But I knew that now I'll be okay. So I didn't let anybody know that I got hurt. So I went to Daytona, people asked me why I was limping. I told him, I just, you know, you know, bad knee or something. Freddie <laughs> uh, Spencer won the superbike race, and I was right there with Baldwin, who got second for a while, but I was having to race with Wayne Rainey on the Kawasaki. And I couldn't lean over to see, the left, the right side. I couldn't make the two right-hand turns very well because my pelvis and my hip, the... When they put it back together, they put my leg on at an angle that was wrong, and my hip the ball joint thing wasn't just right. So it was really painful to go on the right-hand turn. But my Honda was fast enough to where I could beat him down the straightaway. So I, I just said to myself, Rainey, you can ride the wheels on that thing all day long if you want in the infield. I'm going to jerk you down the straightaway. And so finally he ended up giving up because he couldn't keep up with me because my Honda was better than his. But so I ended up getting third behind, you know, world champion Spencer and United States champ Baldwin. But you- that was the only time that I got hurt. And I didn't tell anybody, didn't let anybody know. I mean, I got some Yahoo scars to, to show you. I mean, I could show you what they zippered me up, and, they, and then I had them take it out a few years later. So I've got two scars where they put it in and one scar where they took it out. But Oh, and then that, that X-ray with my name Aldana on it and the screws, I said, save me the screws when you take it out. So they saved the plate, the screws, and then like a – honey knife that went into the ball of my, my hip when they put it all together. And I took it to an auction, and I, I didn't get a chance to tell the story of how it went because I had to go to the restroom. When I came back, they'd auctioned it off. They sold that x-ray and the screws with with meat still on them and blood still on the screws for $700 at an auction in like 1989 or something like that. What? I, they put it at an auction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, somebody's that, got the somebody's got the picture and the screws. I had them save the bag, and the bag to David Aldana, and we got like eight, nine screws with a. Uh, anyway, then it still got 
they had took chunks of like fish meat on the heads of the screws. <laughs> did, did a race fan buy those, or did someone that was pretty yeah, sick? Yeah, and yeah. T- oh. <laughs> a race fan that Arma had an auction at Daytona, and uh, I don't know who bought it. When I came back, they said it sold. I said, well, how much did it go for? He said, 700 I bet I got, I got a couple thousand out of it if I could have told my story that went with it. But, oh, uh, my. Those things yeah. are out there somewhere today, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Man. I, I've had little stuff, you know, like I've broken some fingers. I've broken my wrist. I broke my elbow. They're all little little lightweight stuff I consider, you know. Today yeah. would cry, and they'd be off for, you know, two months or something. But I... My two fingers, I broke a Santa Rosa mile. I duct taped them together, and I rode the main event with concussion and two broken fingers. And uh, and because the, the duct tape worked so good, when I got home and started working on my PSAs again, those that I know, they were already starting to knit up together. So I took the duct tape off. It was too late. They'd already kind of got fixed to the wrong direction. So I have two fingers on my right hand that are going <laughs> east and west and north and south. <laughs> He's going straight forward. Uh, but uh, anyway, I've broken some other stuff. I broke my heel, but it, it, nothing that, that that kept me off my motorcycle. The only thing that kept me off my motorcycle for any length of time was that pelvis and hip that it broke. Nothing stops you from pulling the throttle cables, though, right? Oh yeah, yeah, man. You know, I, I I tell you what, man. I'm not. I, I don't know whether I'm more surprised uh, of uh, you know um, that. You were racing again after such a short amount of time after sustaining those kind of injuries, or if uh, I'm more surprised that your name is Joe. <laughs> I, that's uh, <laughs> I'd never I'd never heard that before. That's that's pretty. Uh, uh, does anybody does your family call you Joe, or does everybody call you Dave no, or David? No, no, no. My 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 brother's name too. My mother never called us by our first names. It was always by our middle names. So whenever I got in any kind of riff or, or any kind of thing that uh, was, you say, printed in the local newspapers, everyone thought it was my father being <laughs> the bad boy in town. <laughs> they, they, yeah. So on legal documents and everything like that, now the rest of the world knows. Yeah. When it comes to legal documents, I find my real name. Not my cool <laughs> name, I should say. Uh, but that's, yeah. that's wild, man. That's wild. Well, I mean, and, you know. and, and, and people... And people tried to give me a nickname, you know, in high school when I was racing bikes, and yeah. I would not respond to anything except David. People would say, hey, Davey, Dave. I would never, and I still don't today, I will not turn around and acknowledge, even though I hear that, until I hear David, then I turn around. And that comes from when I was in grammar school and high school, there were three Davids in the same, you know, we grew up together. There were three of us. And so I didn't know if they're calling someone else's name or my name until I heard David. I would not respond. I still don't. But anyway, wow. so now you know the rest of the story. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Now that's great. Like I said, once again, man, I've said it like three times. I'm going to say it. I'll say it a million times. I think you need to write a book. I'm going to be the first guy to buy one. I know there'd probably be a million other people behind me lined up to, to do the same. Uh, incredible stuff. Um, you know, and I just want to say thanks for taking the time to to talk to us and, and and share so much of your life with us. You know, unfortunately, like I said as, at the beginning of the show, Corey wasn't uh, as you know, Corey Texter's you know production twins champion uh, in the AFT series, and, and this is his show. I co-host it with him, and uh, he wasn't able to be on here, but. Uh, you know, you got any words for Corey? Uh, any words of wisdom or advice or uh, 
or something that'll toughen him up a little bit while he's sitting on the couch tonight. Uh, it, you know, I'm sure he would love to hear something from from you. Well, I, I, I guess really you're supposed to, you know, take the training wheels off it before you start riding on the motocross track <laughs> and then get hurt. That's <laughs> one thing. And then uh, what I said earlier too, you know, winners never quit and quitters never win. And I know last year when he was. Uh, Having to, to to win the race, Chris Carr came down and I, I saw what he where he needed some some guidance. And I'll be damned if Chris Carr didn't go down there and then uh, Corey share it and the winner circle that what Chris Carr ever him to do in the corner was actually what he needed to do all night long. So I kind of think that you know he, he's good at listening to uh, people's suggestions. Uh, I, I think of that old expression I've heard about. You know, Take my advice. I'm not using it. That you know, suggestions work with advice uh, because Chris comes from you know doing it and knowing what has to be done to get yeah. it to happen. And Corey was smart enough to maybe ask for some assistance or help. But I know he he won that last race. I, I forget where it was, but I, I remember the conversation that he shared with the fans. And I you know I. And I've talked with Corey a little bit, and I think he's doing a lot for motorcycling. Uh, I, I don't think I ever mentioned his father, even though his father was probably in the same era I was in. But uh, it's it's nice to see, you know, like father, like son, and his sister doing very well, like she's doing. And I think what he's doing particularly is uh, helping the, the 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 profession. I don't want to say sport. But the profession, because he's giving back already while he's still in the thick of things, giving back by helping those young guys go up north to that, uh, I think what they're called, the Grand Amps or something they had up there in Ohio. Yeah, the amateur nationals. Yeah, I think that is is something really good. Uh, I I think that's that's a very positive thing. So if Corey's listening, uh, just keep doing what you're doing. If it works for you and you're having fun, you know, life's too short not to enjoy the time that we're here. Words well said. Words well said. Well, like I said, um, David, we, we'd like to dedicate this show to Nick Delajanis. Uh, we know he was your tuner, so this show is dedicated to him. And thank you for taking the time to talk to us tonight. And uh, we wish you the best. And, and I know we'll, we'll cross paths at a r- racetrack sooner or later. All right, then. Thank you. And for all the people that are out there listening, uh, thank you for being a fan of David Aldana for all these years. It is is super humbling to be remembered for something I was doing so many years ago for fun that people remember and come and say positive and nice things to me about that. And for all of that, I, I can only say thank you to all the people out there. Thank you very much. Thanks again, David. All right, then. I'll see you, and I'll talk to you when I talk to you. All right, sounds good, man. I pr- thanks again. I really, I really appreciate it. Okay, yeah, I got a couple more hours of this shit back at the top. We'd have to, hey, round two. Well, round two, we're, we're, we'd love to have you back on. Yeah. Okay, all right, then. All right, sounds good. Have a good one. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. That dude's David a legend. Oh, Donna, what do you got to say about that, Carter? Legend. Dude, I could listen to that all day long like there's i geek out on that stuff man like there should be maybe maybe i can convince Corey or some other writer or somebody out there that likes podcasts because i I obviously like podcasts to do a podcast where we just talk to legends like old school riders like that because i could eat it up i eat it up i could listen to it all day i'm with you 100 percent. and obviously anybody listening to the show is in the podcast 
as well. So, hey, we're a bunch of podcast geeks, I guess. And uh, anytime you can talk to somebody with that kind of insight, that kind of history, um, that's, that's you know, I mean, a legend of the sport. I mean, I know we have a lot of guests on this on this show, and they're all great. Uh, but that one, for me, on a personal level, was uh right on man it was pretty cool uh what, what surprised me is like i didn't realize that he was such a trendsetter not just in the sport or you know but, but for motorcycles dude from uh, from you know obviously the leathers i didn't know the the backstory of the leathers um of why he did it so that was super cool to hear i never uh really knew the whole helmet deal either so that was super cool to hear and just the attitude his training regiment like a lot of different ways he was a trendsetter for the sport of, yeah. of flat track yeah Big time, big time trendsetter because, I mean, we talked about the 70s and we talked to some of the old school riders on here, you know, uh, and, you know, we talked like the Ben Bosham show talking about, you know, Jay Springsteen and, you know, and we know, you know, those old timers, Terry Poovy, and he would go to the starting line with a cigarette in his mouth and, you know, you don't think of guys of, the, uh, of that era um, training the way that riders do today and uh, to hear David Aldana tell his story and his work ethic and his how he his approach to racing uh kind of blew my mind man i never knew that you know uh, i once again i got to refer back to uh on any sunday because as most of us that's our only you know that was our introduction to david aldana and uh they they, they show him as the crazy kid from santa Ana, california which obviously he was but <laughs> there's another side to him as well and that totally blew my mind. Best of both worlds, man. He's he's able to uh, train and, and f- train for racing like the the new school of racers do, but let it all hang out and party like the old school too, huh? So it's good stuff. Yeah, he was. Yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's there's not what a, like he said, trendsetter, man. What, yeah. Trendsetter all the way, and a really smart guy. You know, obviously business wise, and they, he's done well for himself, and and he's still racing to this day. Uh, you know, racing's hard on people. It, it, it beats you up. So to be, uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly how old David is, but I know he's pushing 70 years old. So to be out there still lining up, uh, he's he's done pretty good for himself. When he writes that book, I've got the perfect title. Just Some Joe. Just Some Joe. That is it. <laughs> and and the, another mind blower right there. Yeah. Joe? Like, what? Yeah. And, you know, we're kind of starting to trend here. Cause, That's uh, good stuff. Carter. Yeah, Max Whale. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Max Whale, yeah. man. Like, oh, I was oh, so, great. I was like, killer whale, no way. And then yeah. he, he drops Kevin on us. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then you know, yeah, uh, uh, David Aldana drops Joe on us. But you know what? I'll tell you, that's pretty smart, though. He was able to use his legal name to kind of keep him out of the limelight when uh, it wasn't a good time to be in the limelight. So smart dude. Trendsetter once again, man. Uh, you know, well, if you have kids out there, you might want to think about calling them by their middle name. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, there's definitely a few uh, a few things on the calendar. We got a, a few things we got to go through here. First, we'll, we'll talk about uh, a race here in Ohio. It's a uh, Best Ohio Summer Series, August 15th and 16th. Here coming up soon uh, in the next week. The location is Harpster, Ohio. Uh, there's it's a short track uh, on the 15th, half mile on the 16th. Uh, for more info, uh, you can check them out on Facebook at the Best Ohio Summer Series. 
Our next event, speaking of our guest, David Aldana, it's uh, an event he's going to be taking part of. It's uh, Lakeside Speedway in Kansas City, Missouri, August 15th. Uh, the track is uh, a four-tenth se uh, semi-bank track. And uh, for you uh, math mathematicians out there, that's just shy of a half mile. So it's, uh, it's a fairly good-sized track. Um, they're going to be uh, uh, running all the traditional classes in conjunction with an ARMA event. Uh, the cool thing about it is uh, they have $1,000 guaranteed to win. And uh, also, they're going to have a it's, – it's going to be a time trial event. And they're giving $500 to the guy who goes around the fastest. So not just a pro class. Huh, that's interesting. Overall. Whoever rides around that place the fastest during time trials is going to get 500 bucks. Wow. So potentially you can get 1500 bucks for winning it and, and being fast time. Uh, the other cool thing is uh, they're putting up some money for the 70 plus class, which you don't often see. Hmm. So they're going to have another 500 bucks for the 70 plus class. Uh, might give those guys a little bit more ambition to, you know, let it hang out. Nice. Um, they're looking to get a crowd there and, uh, they're making general admission tickets only 12 bucks, so it's fairly affordable to wow. bring out the family and watch some good racing on what should be a pretty fast racetrack. I know they're going to put a lot of prep into uh, the surface of that and try to make it as racy as possible. Uh, more info on Facebook at Great Plains Flat Track Series. Never seen any flat track racing in Missouri. There's a, there, it's kind of a busy weekend. We've also got a race in Indiana, uh, the RTR Motorplex, uh, August fifteenth in Indianapolis, Indiana. The TT during the day, and at nighttime they're gonna race on a on a fifth mile short track, uh, a one fifth mile short track. Uh, also, they will be hosting an Indy Mile short track midweek on the nineteenth. Uh, camping available with water and electric hookups. Uh, more information through Facebook at RTR Motorplex or RTRMotorplex.com. I guess they're trying to, you know, maybe tie in something with uh, the, the Indy Mile. And for those traveling in to, to either race or, or watch the races, um, you know, that track is located right in Indianapolis and they have uh, camping available. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Um, you can never complain about more racing on, on a weekend. I sure wouldn't complain about more racing. Um, so I, I, mean, I, I guess that's it, right? I filled in and I, I do all right. Yeah, man, you did a good job. Uh, you know, uh, well, you always do a good job. Almost, really almost talk. forgot. We have, we do have to thank our sponsors again here at the end. I mean, they make yeah. this possible, right? So we've got to make sure we get them in here. Talk a little bit more about Bell Power Sports. You know how all three champions from the American Flat Track Series, they wore Bell. Did you know that, Sammy? They wore know that. the Bell Race Star Flex last season. All three champions. I can't believe it. Corey says it every week, and I still don't believe it. Check out bellhelmets.com to view their full line of products. The quality and safety is unmatched. If you start tank slapping, you're going to want to be protected by Bell. And I'm going to put you on the spot and uh, ask you who now all three champions are. All three? Come Carter? on. Get out of here. Come on. Briar Bauman. Briar Bauman. Dalton Gautier. And then I, I can't remember the third one. Yeah, I forget the other guy. Uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe we can ask Corey. He might know. I don't know. I'll, I'll think of it. I'll think of it. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> send Corey a text. Maybe he'll know. We also got to give a Dunlop Tire a shout out. Thank them. Um, they're for jumping on as a sponsor. Dunlop is the official tire of American Flat Track Series with their new and improved DT4 Flat Track Tire. 
Dunlop has two compound front tires and three compound rear flat track tires available. To find your nearest dealer, visit DunlopMotorcycleTires.com. Hit them up on social media and tell them the boys from Tank Slapping sent you. And we can't forget Western Ohio Motorsports LLC uh, in Greenville, Ohio. They promote amateur motorcycle racing all across Ohio. Uh, you can find Western Ohio Motorsports and Best Ohio Summer Series on Facebook. Well, Carter, that's uh, that's the end of our show. Um, I don't know how we did. Uh, maybe we'll maybe Corey could listen and, and give us some feedback. I, I think it'll be just fine because we interviewed a legend. And everybody's going to want to hear that. So so however good we did or didn't do, it doesn't matter because David Aldana was a guest. And he killed it. Killed it. I loved it. No, it's good stuff. Yeah, man. Appreciate you Let me jump in. And uh, did he really give us the keys to do that? Did he allow this to happen? I almost can't believe we're doing the show right now without Corey Texter. I feel kind of like... I feel like it's a dream. Well, hopefully Corey can uh, rest up and uh, be ready for the next one. It, it, it just got him today. You know, I mean, obviously he ain't hurt, hurt, but nah. you know, I just uh, rattled him up a little bit. Well, he missed out on one hell of an episode. I'm sure he'll be back for the next one. I appreciate you. Let me sit in. Until next week. See ya. Peace. Peace.